It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long. And you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy, with your hosts, Eric, Isaac, and Caleb. Listen in as they discuss the 1997 film, Titanic. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, those between and affiliated, to the Titanic. Literally, we're back on the Titanic somehow. We've traveled through time, and we're on the Titanic. Uh, that is the Titanic on the bottom of the ocean. Oh. I don't know uh, how we're doing this. I don't know how we're alive, but we're, we're here. Um, now, at, well, as you can see, uh, there's only half of it. Now, um, okay. If you're seeing this and you're like, I'm confused. Why does it say... Titanic Part One. Um, so here, here's here's how it goes. So we obviously we're we're on like you know the bow side. We're on the 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 bow side, and over there, like a few kilometers away, is the stir. So we're here on this one. This is discussing Jimmy Cameron's uh, uh, Titanic movie from 1997, right? Uh, with with uh, with the good with the good buds Eric and Caleb and myself, um, so today we'll be discussing that at a later date on an undiscernible amount of time. Uh, we're gonna do part two, which is the historical Titanic, because I uh, wanted somebody else on, mm-hmm. and he is a massive fan of like you know ocean liners and such, so. There is no way that we would fit every single bit of like information uh, about the Titanic as possible in this review because we're gonna talk about the movie itself. And I know a lot. It's it's one of the a very like uh, heavy. It's heavily criticized for not being you know just in poor taste. People are just like, oh, it's not as. Uh, it, sh- it should be remembering, you know, why are we making this whole fantasy up about, like, this love story when all these people suffered and died and when I, whatever. Fair enough. So, and there's a lot of other inaccuracies that, that, that James Cameron made, or, lib- sorry, artistic liberties, as one would say, uh, creative decisions uh, that he made uh, in this film. So, I feel like, at least me personally, I think we're going to excise all of that from this review. Maybe okay, maybe that's mm. a little hard. I don't know if Eric had anything on the table or Caleb had to bring that to the table. But we'll take all of that, and we're going to do, later on down the line, we're going to do part two uh, at the stern section, and we're going to talk about it. Because I feel like we should, because it's it's a really cool thing, and it was it, you know it's 110 years. It's been it's been down here for 110 years. I feel like and soon to be 111. So I feel like it it deserves our time. So we'll do that separately. But for now, gentlemen, let us talk about James Cameron's 1997 1997 excuse me masterpiece, as some might say. Maybe some might say magnum opus. 
I don't know. Uh, one Titanic. So, yeah. opening thoughts, Caleb. What did you think of James Cameron's Titanic? Oh, before I jump into that, I just want to say thank you for that opening. I was gonna mention that this is the, uh, in some ways, the second installment in our Titanic uh, movie series, because that other host that you mentioned, Johnny, joined us. I think it was two years ago now. It was, or maybe just one year ago, to discuss the Legend of Titanic. The first of those Italian uh, animated movies that was yes. basically ripoffs of this this movie here. Oh yeah, we got a few more to go with that. <laughs> yeah, so Johnny, yeah, said that he wants to do those other animated shows, and then yeah, return to cover this and maybe some of the other live action movies based on the Titanic because there's actually been a fuck ton. <laughs> of course, and of and of course, Eric, you are uh, you are absolutely open to joining us for this like the historical look at yeah, the Titanic, welcome. of course, yeah. at a later day. But of course, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Yeah, my thoughts for this film. Um, back when I was a little kid, my parents, they had a, a number of films that came packaged in a set of two VHS tapes. Probably three, to have to switch the tape. And for whatever reason, well, actually, I know the reason. But I always associated those, those kind of uh, two VHS movies as kind of in a different league, kind of a prestige quality to them. Spartacus, they had like that. Titanic, of course, Fiddler on the Roof, one of my all-time favorite movies, and so, you know, I would always be a special occasion when I would sit down and put in one of those flicks, and Titanic was heavy in that rotation, uh, but after the the end of the VHS days, my parents gave away almost all their tapes, and I was so heartbroken. Um, I'd always meant to come back to this, but for whatever reason, I could never could never justify the the sitting down for the three hours and fifteen minute runtime. And over the years, it just kind of started to sour in my mind. I was kind of like, oh, was that movie all that great? Like, I remember Red Letter Media did their review, and they kind of bashed it a little bit. I was like, ah, I remember it being okay. Uh, but, yeah, so so coming back to it, this is the first time I've seen it since my childhood. And I definitely was, was coming in with my, my shoulders slumped. Like, oh, it's going to be so fucking long. And I don't even remember it being that great anymore. And I even joked to my partner, I was like, oh, like, because I asked her if she wanted to watch with me, and she was like, no way, three hours and 15 minutes, that's crazy. And I told her that when we go see Avatar uh, 2, this movie's actually only four minutes shorter than that movie It's going to end up being, so <laughs> so that's going to be fun. But yeah, maybe I'll save my, my actual thoughts for you watching it as we discuss it, but, but to you, Eric, or some of your thoughts for this one. I remember fairly well when this movie came out at the theater, and... I was one of those people at the time who I assumed it was some type of romantic situation type movie and and I the hype was everywhere everybody was talking about it and how many weeks it was at the top of the box office and all that kind of jazz and I was just one of those people who was just kind of like no I don't want to get I don't want to get on this train like I don't want to I don't want to be a part of this um, right now uh, but after several weeks, um, I guess I had like a weekend or something where I had nothing going on, and I just decided, screw it, I'm just gonna go see this movie, and, and just go see, you know, what it's all about. Several, several weeks after it came out, but it was still at the theater. Went there with, at that point, little expectations, just despite the hype, and I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe what I watched. Um, and I was always a big fan of it. I don't think I ever owned it before. Um, 
but fast forward to I don't know what year it was it was probably around 2012 or something 2014 who knows and the movie was re-released at the theaters in 3D and um, 3D was already starting to kind of fade uh, um, fade like the hype was already starting to fade at that point because we all know Avatar had such an impact on on the whole market but like the the Star Wars remaster kind of like failed um, to inspire and you know whatever but even in those days if it was the director who said they were really dedicate dedicated to the 3d or whatever and oh because it was James Cameron even though it was, it was a refit of a movie um, I was like no I still want to see this and I did go see it I do remember that most of the, the, the 3d was, was was done really well in post for this movie that being said I fell asleep about 35 45 minutes in and didn't wake up till the end so I don't know what that has that that probably has nothing to do with my feelings of the movie it's just a little sad that uh, I fell asleep for most of the 3d um, viewing but having watched the the entire movie for this discussion I guess it's really the first time I've watched the movie start to finish um, since the early 2000s probably because um, as much as I've always enjoyed it, 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 it has always felt like a big, bit much to actually sit and revisit it. And it's not just the running time per se, but it's like, at least in my mind, I feel like I know all the major bits, like all the major plot points. And I don't mm. feel like I have to go through all the motions again. Um... But that's part of the hesitance of ever revisiting this movie. Uh, Isaac? Um, I'll go more into some of that when we do, you know, the historical part two. Uh, but needless to say, uh, Titanic has been a part of my house for... Uh, the history of the Titanic itself has been part of my house for quite a long time. Uh, there's There's been interest in it with my family. Uh, no, we did not have any like people who are. I guess I should ask that. Hey, Caleb and or Eric, did any of your ancestors were they on the Titanic? No, <laughs> not that I'm aware of. Okay, fair enough. Now that we got that out of the way, um, yeah, neither here. Uh, just you know, it's a fascinating like you know piece of media and uh, or not media, but it's a fascinating fascinating piece of nonfiction of actual historical events that happened that you know did not occur during the time of war funny enough but it, that's our uh, night uh, actually it was before war never mind uh so ignore that um <laughs> that. before the war happened before the war thankfully um but no um i i can certainly see why this film there was a there was a film made around around this uh, historical event um and and why you could create a story from it uh, almost in a way uh so Initially, I'll, I will say that I, I, admittedly, I probably bought into the hype and the mob mentality of like, oh, it's too long, it's it's this, it's that schmaltzy, it's a Steven P Steven Spielberg picture or something like that, <laughs> like how rumph, how rumph, how rumph, we got sticks up our butt or, or some crap like that. Um, even though I had I had like you know, person in my f family who was very much like into this uh, and into the side of the history behind it, but. Um, yeah, no, I think I think it was I think it worked. Um, but when did I first see this movie? I 
Can't even tell you. I know when I watched it last, before, you know, this this review, or this, yeah, this commentary. Not, sorry, not commentary, but yeah, this this review. Um, I remember liking it. I remember very much enjoying it. Uh, yeah, it's long, but I think it's long for a reason. Like, I mean, again, if it's padding, you know, like it's it's really split into two halves. Like, you, you literally have like all the setup with like, you know, these two characters, and then you have like, you know, well, the payoff, but then you have, well, the sinking, uh, which tells both the sinking of the Titanic and then the, you know, the sinking of this this, this relationship. <laughs> if I may say so. So, um, yeah, I'd say I'm a little more like, you know, like hopefully showing my hand here, but I think I'm mostly like, yeah, positive uh, to this, this not, just, not just this viewing, but uh, positive to this movie itself. Yeah, and I'll say uh, I think it was good prep for me that during this year I went through a whole bunch of uh, disaster movies from the 70s and this movie follows very much the traditional style of the disaster movie not like a lot of the the 90s ones um, I feel like this one really spends the time to build um, not not necessarily suspense because I mean I guess there's some suspense because we all know that the disaster is going to come uh, but it's it tries to really set you in this these characters' lives and just kind of almost make you forget that a disaster is going to happen. And then once a disaster does happen, then you really do care about the characters, and it just feels like this giant explosion of violence. So in that way, I was definitely really appreciating um, just the disaster elements. I felt like this is like a traditional style that I really like for those kind of movies. So, uh, but then again, I, I will say the length, e even this viewing it. I mean, I find it disruptive. I find it difficult to sit there for the whole runtime and stay engaged all the way through. And I do feel like there's definitely some padding. Uh, but we can discuss some of those more details as we go through it. Uh, for you, Eric, did you find the length? Actually sitting down and watching it, did you find it difficult? Or were you just sucked in the whole way through? I was actually mostly sucked in. Um, just because of other situations going on, um, I ended up watching approximately half one day and then picking it up the next day. Mm. But if those things hadn't come up, I probably would have sat and watched it all in one sitting. Um, I, it actually went surprisingly well for me. I mean, I didn't have that feeling of, oh, I got to get up. I got to get out of here. I got to go do something. No, I was, I was reasonably engaged all the way through. Um, I was thinking about the time be of the movie at first because when I was taking that pause I felt like I had already seen a lot of movie and when I saw oh my god there's 90 minutes left like holy crap hmm. like that's wild um but but nah but I, I was there for it it worked out it, yeah I, I enjoyed it really yeah and Isaac did you find the uh did you sit through in one sitting or break it up too because I, def I definitely feel like that would help break yeah it i think breaking it i i, yeah, I broke up <laughs> i broke up with it no uh <laughs> I, I i i kept it in its chunks every now and then uh mm -hmm. i think yeah honestly i think that's a better idea almost not to say like yes watching it like all the way through in one sitting is i think a a, a titanic of a uh, of a task i'll say that but uh even i think you know cutting it in half like eric said i think that's not a bad idea given like i think it earns like almost a break um I'm not saying it should but like in a bad way i think it's like because you can you can watch it's almost like you watch like a film 
well, albeit like whether you criticize like the beginning part is like a film, you can watch that first part and be like, okay, this feels nice. And then like as soon as you know they hit the iceberg or the iceberg is about to approach, it's like, okay, I'm gonna take a break. And then you like let those like schmaltzy feelings sit with you for a while, bottle up like wine. And then it turns out uh, once the Titanic, and then you know you you, you sit, let it sit for a day, and you're like, I have a good feeling. And then you go back to it, and all of a sudden you realize that you know after the iceberg, you know, hits the Titanic, you realize like, well, this uh, wine has been converted by alchemidage to milk, and you know exactly what milk is like when it's oh, aged. No. <laughs> uh, not not like I mean by like the the product of the movie itself. I just mean like now I have bad feelings. I have I have sad feelings. Yeah, I will say for me, I did sit and watch it all in one sitting, and yeah, I was definitely maybe around the 220 mark. I started like kind of moving around in my seat, like okay, like it was around the time when the wrinkle of of Jack being like handcuffed to the thing and the whole oh he stole the diamond plot. That's when I was kind of like okay, I don't know if we need this wrinkle just now. Like maybe let's maybe let's move this a little quicker. We're already at 220 here. Like oh man, so 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 I did feel the length in that regard. But, but I will say it it works better than I would have guessed for the length that it's at. I remembered it dragging a lot more for my faulty memories. <laughs> but but just since I'm watching the the beginning here with the the modern day stuff, how did you guys feel like that wraparound works? Did you feel like that was necessary? Because that's some of the stuff that I feel like was padding. Like I'm not sure how much of that we needed. Like it's 20 minutes until we actually see the real Titanic and the the olden times days that that's a long time to wait i think yeah no that's that's fair i did i did have some thoughts on that um i don't i don't know if this is going too much into it uh but again trying to like stick to stick with like you know james cameron and you know his side um <laughs> okay first off can i at least i meant to, i should have opened with this as well but um uh, i think as a little like tagline as this movie was an excuse to impress Jimmy's new girlfriend since he's not getting a divorce, <laughs> it was a bet to show he could make a drama without explosions going off. Oh, there you go. There you go. There you go. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say this movie was an excuse for James Cameron to go and explore the real Titanic. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's certainly that too, but... Um, no, um... Okay, here's the thing with the beginning. Uh, it's it, It's... It's a reason for the movie to, or the whole story to exist of the of his fictitious romance, uh, in a way, because you know you have this this treasure hunter or artifact hunter, whatever you want to call it, putting it in a museum, which are you know politically incorrect nowadays, uh, but by not not nineteen ninety seven of course, but in like you know twenty twenty two, but uh, you you kind of have this. You know, again, we have Bill Paxton here plays a wonderful character. I will say that I think he, once again, acts very not just smug, but like you know his character kind of just seemed like a sleaze ball in a way at the beginning, at least, uh, or throughout, if you if you will. Um, and he's he's off to find this this uh, diamond of the sea, or I'm uh, sorry, uh, heart of the ocean, and yeah. he. You know, it's worth. What was it again? It was worth uh, more than the. Um, I forget the the Hope Diamond. The Hope Diamond. Yeah, it was is worth way more than the Hope Diamond, which I didn't do research on because mm. that's how dumb I am. But um, <laughs> what? so you know, so he this this whole like beginning part is just for the flashback, which I think was kind of cool to like because it's like a surviving member and they a surviving member of the Titanic because you know most of them were 
you know, getting to that age where they wouldn't be around anymore. So kind of mm-hmm. an interesting, like, and it's funny, like how in 1997, you could only do that plot uh, yeah. in 1997, or at least, you know, before the 21st century, because this was literally like the big be- near the, yeah, the, the beginning of the 20th century. And so it's the end of it. So it kind of, yeah, you can almost say like, it's commenting on like, you know, looking yeah back as you said like into the old world even though the old world was in the same century and it's just like juxtaposing you know what we have now to when we had back then so that's that's interesting but i also thought and maybe again i'm i'm going like way off here and i'm off base and don't know what i'm talking about i'm a crackpot you know uh cracking at like pigeons on the portman bridge johnny would say uh with a tin can or something like that but um i was wondering at least with the beginning part with bill paxton's character and his crew you know looking for this um part of the ocean there um is he is is jimmy is he like commenting on like the modern day parts the 1997 parts uh as you know michael Crichton would in his books or his films uh when it came to scientists with like no moral ethic code and they're only in mm. there for the science and they're not talking about the ethics of this stuff like does this uh paxton's character have the right to go down there and well yeah is you know, most like treasure hunters are like does he have the right to you know go in there yeah. and and find like these pillage. treasures and yeah exactly pillage and loot and all that, and all that stuff That's, that was one of the questions i had with the modern day stuff and he was commenting on that and, you know throughout the course of the tale as we cut back you know sporadically um to and from when rose is re- recounting uh, her memories of the titanic if if he was being swayed by uh, her and forgetting about the diamond that's kind of the point uh or if you know again he was just using her as a means to an end or well, whatever I, that, that was my question so i don't know if that answered your question at all sir but yeah it's uh it was interesting i'll say that with the modern day stuff i think it worked out pretty well yeah that, that's that's interesting perspective yeah for me i i just wondered if it was james cameron i uh, just kind of wanting to to show the wonders of the the deep sea um, excavations that they could do now in this character being kind of a kind of an in for what he does because i mean this is kind of his hobby or at least it was at this time doing all this this deep sea exploration stuff so i thought he wanted to kind of show what the modern technology of that stuff is but but no what you were saying was interesting too uh, but but how about you eric well i think it benefits on 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 the different fronts um but for me yes you could cut all the modern day stuff and it would still be a perfectly fine and exceptional movie uh if it was only set in its period and nothing else i think that'd be fine but for me personally and the way i appreciate the movie now i think it's it's important to get the full effect for me which is tying the present to the past because I think that adds another layer of enjoyment and and engagement for me and, and, and pushing it even further. Now, could they have maybe shortened it a bit at the front? Because uh, like you say, there's like 20-something minutes before we actually go to the past. Eh, probably. But it's it's more near... It's, it's neither here or there for me if you shorten that particular bit but i would definitely keep it all as a whole and and mercifully they only aside from the bookends of the present day 
the check-ins with present day are mercifully short and unobtrusive, I would say. There's only, besides the bookends of the movie, I think there's only two times, three at the most, yeah. they revisit present day. And when they do, it's really quick and brief. Um, so it doesn't really take you out of the story. The the nineteen uh, is it nineteen twelve the nineteen twelve story, um, but the bookends are important, and I don't know if I should talk all about that now. Uh, <laughs> but I've always been fascinated um, in many things uh, that show characters like much older, thinking mm. back to the past. Um, I used to think about it a lot with the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles series. Um, and at least in the first episode, I think, uh, someone's interviewing Indy and he's like 100 years old or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, he's, and he's recalling his life. Um, in, uh, I can't remember if it was the first or maybe it was just the second Young Guns movie. But this, like... Um, newspaper reporter is like supposedly uh, interviewing Billy the Kid in in the 20th century uh, oh wow I, I guess he, he yeah it's almost like Interview of the Vampire which is another one by the way Interview of the Vampire because they're like well, you know we, they said you were dead but you know I guess he's been living incognito and he's like an old 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 man and he's huh. telling the story about um, back in the 1800s um but uh, oh, there was one more I had in my mind, but it escapes me now what it was. Um, oh, I was just thinking of at the end of um, the Godfather trilogy, and you see Michael Corleone, and he's a really, really old man about about to expire. Right. He's just kind of reflecting on his <laughs> life. I've always been taken by those types of devices in film and television, mm-hmm. and... I mean, it's it's one of the many one-two punches that like gets me in Interstellar. I already love that movie, um, but spoiler if you haven't seen it, um, it, it just adds even more for me. Like when uh, when Cooper uh, meets like his his aged daughter Murph, um, and and looking at old Murph, and then reflecting on her character's life in the movie but but you're trying to imagine the actual expiration of time in, in a lifetime um and yeah it and with this movie um with the stuff that happens at the very end uh in present day oh that that just takes it to a whole nother level and i don't know how else you could recreate that yeah without spending some time in the present day and and then somebody or maybe both of you were saying real quick about this is some kind of commentary on like soulless archaeologists or people who are just looking out for a profit and not really appreciating you know these these real people who died and da 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 I think it's just a confluence of uh, like it benefits multiple parties and multiple aspects because Hmm. I get like whether you're talking about just archaeologists in general and explorers in general and scientists or if you're talking about like James Cameron specifically because you go oh it's an excuse so he can like justify like his diving to the wreckage and stuff but I think it all works out like in the context of let's say the movie um okay fine 
somebody stands to profit if they can locate this 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 priceless diamond. So that's really what it's all about. But I always see that well that's okay because because fine, someone wants to get that diamond, but that's perhaps why we even get this voyage in the first place to even explore the wreckage. So scientists and archaeologists can benefit from the capitalist who's trying to find the treasure. You know what I mean? Because maybe there wouldn't be the funding for such an expedition if there was no potential for finding treasure. You know what I mean? So to me, it just kind of works out either way. You know, it, in, in American universities and colleges, sometimes people complain like, um, you know, why does all the attention or why does all the money go to like the football program and, and not like the girls golf team or whatever? No offense to the girls golf team. But the simple argument always is because the football team is the only one who not only do they bring in millions of dollars to the school, they're like the only sport that even brings in money to the school. And not only that, but the football program pays for all the other sports programs. You know what I mean? Because the other sure. sports programs don't really generate revenue. So, so everybody owes something to the football team, whether you like them or not. Um, because a high tide raises all boats. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, and I was just thinking to mirror James Cameron to these uh, these guys trying to re resurrect the Titanic in some way for for profit. I mean, in some ways, that's what he's doing himself as a director making this movie, like taking this tragedy and there were victims that were still alive, and he was making this big spectacle disaster movie movie out of it. Now, just watching that scene of uh, the more portly of the scientists, I was showing Rose the the diagram, the CGI diagram of the ship breaking apart and he's like fascinated by it and super excited about how how interesting the the destruction was i was thinking of james cameron as well in that way i'm sure he was fascinated about how to do that effect and probably intrigued by the unique way the ship broke up so i just wonder if yeah he's making a, a comment on himself in some way with that stuff there in his own ethos to try to tell a more personal story while also making this for-profit big disaster movie see and now I have another thought on this subject, which is, on the one hand, I'm thinking, hey, this is great, though. I mean, overall, it seems like it's a good thing because, um, like, in my former job, uh, when I w there, there was a lesson that has nothing to do with ships or Titanic, but I would use a certain aspect from this movie as a metaphor for what I was trying to teach in a certain lesson. And because it seems like everybody is familiar with the movie... They always, everyone seems to know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. Um, but my point is not that this movie was created to help me teach a lesson. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, because the point, the part that I would point out as a metaphor for something else is I would say, I would draw on a, on a dry erase board. See, what is this? And it's like, oh, it's a Titanic. Uh, yeah. And I said, do y'all remember how it sank or why it sank? And at first, people are kind of, well, it hit an iceberg. I go, yeah, I know, but but still, they didn't expect it to go down. Like, you know why it sank? And I say, and I draw bulkheads on the, on my little diagram. And according to the movie, and I guess maybe we'll talk about this more, or someone will in part two of this podcast. But according to the movie, anyway, uh, they state that the, the bulkheads don't go all the way to the top of the ship. 
So when they start filling with water, it doesn't prevent the ship from taking on too much water and sinking. And when I and I when I use that example, everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about, and I can only assume it's because they've seen the movie, and nobody would know anything about this other than that there was a big ship that sank. If if not for this movie, um, putting it into the zeitgeist, so there has to be something good about that in of itself, you know that everyone has some idea of what actually happened because of the the movie itself but also this another thought i just had right now was a little bit of a thought of experiment which is i wonder if um 80 years from now approximately do you think that someone could make a really grounded in realism 9-11 movie like approximately a 100 years post 9-11 and and because I feel like yeah, if it, if it was done too soon to the event, you would perhaps get a lot of people saying, "Oh no, this is this is not cool to try to profit over the the tragedy and to like reignite the pain for those people who lost." Like I feel like maybe that wouldn't go over so well like now or ten years ago. But would it be different if it was like approximately a hundred years post nine eleven when no one living really has any living memory of it and would it serve more than like to to future generations to kind of understand what it was like to, to know about it closer in time yeah that one i feel like gets more muddy because there's so much very muddy political stuff around it so it feels like in order to make a movie like that you'd have to take some political perspective in order to tell the story like they do that with this movie i mean they very much what political perspective do you mean, like in this movie? In terms of the, you know, I mean, it was it was very much these arrogant the people behind it, the people who built the ship. Oh, okay, okay. Like the builder, they paint him as the sympathetic character who recognized the faults, but it was just these rich blowhards who kind of pushed past him and kind of plowed ahead, but without being properly prepared. Yeah, okay. You can okay. see at the end that he's so cowardly that he like kind of sneaks onto a boat with women and children the the, the guy who owns the the boat company yes so yes and that feels like a very cameron type move exactly to, yeah. to highlight that for sure so with 9-11 i feel like that'd be more difficult to to paint the political picture without stepping on people's toes even 100 years from now perhaps i don't know certainly but doesn't it seem like it would it would hold some use 100 years from now? like i said to inform those who who have no living memory of the event rather Could than be. just let it fall by the wayside in terms of history. Yeah, but again, a much more muddy disaster in its way. And then even painting that as a disaster movie, I feel like it has uh, potentially more negative connotations than something like this. But but I don't know. Could be. Could be. Because I guess in their way, they're both preventable tragedies. If, uh, yeah, well, anyway. <laughs> but But to the, now that I'm watching the actual transition to the movie i thought it was a really beautiful image to have the the kind of wreck at the bottom of the ocean transform into this lively ship i thought that was beautifully done oh fantastic fantastic and i'll also say uh that whole all the submersibles exploring the ship in the beginning as a little kid that just expanded my imagination i just was completely like just drawn in by all those images and i was i became very fascinated by underwater submersibles just in general Thanks. I always loved anything like that in in any when I was a younger, any anything where you could like 
whether it was in fictional outer space or in the deep sea where you could like send a probe or something remotely to go check something out like oh man love that stuff yeah and how do you feel like the period section comes across do you feel like it feels authentic like I, I go back to Pearl Harbor like the movie I feel like in terms of the costumes stuff feels authentic but the filmmaking and the acting kind of throws me uh, do you guys feel like this one blends okay to, to feel authentic for, for this time period uh, Isaac, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, can I talk about what you guys were talking about before? I just didn't want to interrupt your guys' flow. I know I just like, interrupted this. But, yeah, jump in. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. so um, just with the aspect of the disaster film, like I said last time in, um, let's just say Die Hard, I'm sorry, True Lies. Uh, if you remember, uh, I said, I, mean, I think I misspoke because uh, I, I had to catch myself on this. I said that when... Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and um, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, when they were kissing, uh, right in front of like when the bomb, when the atomic bomb goes off, mm. um, I think I said that the Japanese didn't like the fact that the atomic bomb was used. This that's not true. I think I misread that or misspoke. I think it was they didn't like the fact that they he used it as like a backdrop for like a romantic scene. Like he was literally romanticizing. Um, the tragedy right there of the atomic blast, and mm. some could say like it's it's completely like you know artistic, and you can almost say like oh it's it, it's like a like, like you you say Caleb sometimes like it's beautiful destruction like the when the Death Star blows up like half a scarif or just the not scarif sorry um, Jed Jetta when it destroys the um, you know the temple or the city of Jetta um, in in Rogue One and how like beautiful that like destruction looks, mm. um, but. Yeah, no. So, so he's not. This is not the first time like he's been criticized for, um, you know, r- romanticizing a disaster. If uh, if that makes sense. So, uh, there there is that. And uh, f- f- <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, those in between unaffiliated, if you are still here uh, on September seventh, two thousand ninety six, um, you're <laughs> gonna see the adaptation of nine eleven. Oh 9/11, no! And it'll be like two <laughs> movies. It'll be the before actually it'll be three movies it'll be like beforehand literally all released in the same day it'll be beforehand it'll be the middle uh of like the actual event itself and then the aftermath uh so tune in in set pre-order tickets now for whenever that comes <laughs> well if they ever resurrect the disaster genre yeah maybe that'll be a good one too oh to are make. you kidding me like movers will still be around by 2096 <laughs> yeah, and i'll mention another real life uh, disaster movie the hindenburg from the from the the early '70s, starring George oh. C. Scott, it's another oh, one that yeah. takes a real life disaster and then turns into a movie. Another really good one, I'd recommend. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. So your question yes, about you the authenticity uh, of the 1912 era uh, of the film. Um, oh, I thought the question was was of the modern day. Oh no. Oh, enough. it was. I misheard then. So. <laughs> Wait, yeah. was I wrong or was it was it? Oh, you can see you're right. 1912, yeah, 1912. Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> I was like, well, I mean, 1997 looks fine. Um, yeah. By the way, I will say, even though it's dated, air quotes, uh, when they do the um, when they when they do the little simulation of how the Titanic sank, um, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, it's it's CGI from 1997 because it's it, it that's well, maybe it's 1996, but it's that's that's when it takes place. Yeah. Really good setup. Really good setup, I think. Oh my goodness, can I just praise how, like, great... Like, 
I know, uh, like critic, like like film critics or analysts would like call this film like you know, e- like easy or something like that. You know that, but that, that part easy. It's just like no, but it makes perfect sense. It's a great setup because one, maybe Rose figured it out, but actually, no. Why would she even figure out like what happened? Like she would know all the science behind it. We didn't even know this until like we constructed it in like nineteen, like through nineteen eighty five to like you know at nineteen ninety seven, and it was still like we're still finding things out even after ninety seven. So like, I just love that setup that he explains to her. And the audience, as an by an extension of like, here's what happened, and it, I think you're right, it works perfectly just to get that point across. It almost works like in a heist movie where they explain the <laughs> whole plan and then you get to see it executed. Mm-hmm. It almost works kind of like that. You're absolutely right. Now, anyway, yes, to the for, the former, yeah, the the attire of the 19 uh, 1912, excuse me, 1910, excuse me. Yeah, and, and also the filmmaking. I was curious about, like, because again, Pearl Harbor it's so flashy it's like it, it the movie the filmmaking itself I know exactly what you're talking about in Pearl Harbor jars me yeah it, it takes me out of the time period fair enough uh, I can't comment on Pearl Harbor as I've not seen it it's surprisingly enough it's actually not showing up on any cable t- uh, stations cable movie <laughs> stations so I've yeah, never actually surprising. watched it through, which makes sense whereas this film has shown up on uh, on certain cable TV stations if they're willing to fork out the cash and uh, you know the, I guess the time slot to put it in there but I think well, well, I think the costume design is like phenomenal. I think it should have won like an Oscar, personally speaking, or it should have won awards. Uh, I think they were very authentic to the time. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Some, some fashion designers or fashion uh, fashion people might like you know correct me otherwise. Uh, filmmaking wise, I think it works. I think if you're talking like cinematography, it doesn't feel like Cameron. It's it's so weird. Like like mm-hmm. not not sh- not per se shots, but just like camera wise, like this is like him doing something else entirely. I I think he's really like again like attempted to make a real not oh, sorry, plausible and like grounded film. How about that? Uh, where literally there's like almost no explosions, and I know that sounds especially when the when the, the the one tech guy. Uh, in the modern day stuff was just like as soon as like the Titanic hits the bottom of the ocean like boom explosions and like huh almost proved my point uh, even though there was no explosions but you know what I mean right like mm-hmm. he's doing he's doing something really different I can't obviously explain it full in words but he's certainly looking more at dramas I don't know if he studied any films uh, to and, and like what he um, used his influence for like filming this because I, I don't know how like, at what point at what films he could have looked at. I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing here, but like, yeah, no, I think, I think he did a really good job filming, uh, all the, uh, at least the, all the human drama, uh, in the 1912, uh, era, excuse me. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I was even thinking there was like an element of like a BBC drama, just much better shot. <laughs> really? Like it, it felt like that a little bit. Oh, there's no doubt. There's some of that. Interesting. Yeah. In terms of the costumes feeling authentic as well. Um, yeah, no, I, I thought a lot of that stuff just really impressed me with how how easily you kind of transition from the 1990s into this era without it feeling too jarring. No, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question because it's something I think about all the time with this and other things. And yeah, overall, yeah, I think it does does fantastic, uh, fantastically the way it represents the period. And if you've uh, I think most people have. Well, I remember the puff pieces that came out. I don't know what you call them, but those 
those behind the scene things that they release, but it's for promotion of yeah. the movie. But I remember those that came out uh, on television at the time the movie was out. And so if you ever caught any of those or saw special features somewhere, you know, it's widely known that like how much of this movie was was based upon like photographs and things of like the actual like like the entrance to the ballroom literally looks like the real thing or like the little um workout area and like so many aspects of the deck were made to look exactly like photographs um and when you see some of the people like just walking on the promenade or whatever it's kind of similar to if you're familiar with like barry linden and how in that particular movie they say how there's like multiple scenes that that look almost identical to certain famous paintings and portraits <laughs> and you can tell that Cameron is like trying to recreate some of those still photos with some of the, just the the everyday happenings on deck it's, it's really apparent but but still cool and something and speaking of attention to detail and something I was going to bring up earlier but now is as good a time as any um, for those who have never watched Downton Abbey and even though some of those who have watched it but maybe forgot because they just watched it when it was on TV and you know, a lot of years have have passed since that show first came out. But um, some people forget or don't know that the whole thing that kicks off the storyline in that series, which I adore and I'm a big fan of, it all starts with the sinking of the Titanic. Oh. Um, and I was actually going to bring this up later um, because... Of course, or in the series, they don't actually go to the Titanic or show anything like that. Not at all. But the show starts literally the day after, I think, because it's like the headline on the newspaper in the very beginning of the show. And the reason it's so important to the show is because um, the, uh, what do you call it? The... Um, the next in line for the estate in for Downton Abbey, in the fictional world Downton Abbey. The next in line, the three next in line were all passengers on the ship. And they were all lost on the ship. And so that's what kicks off the whole storyline. Because the whole estate is in disarray because they literally lost like their next three heirs in line. And they have to figure out who's like fourth in line. You know? And... And... That's not the only reason I wanted to bring up Downton Abbey, but Downton Abbey itself is known for attention to detail for the various time periods that it exists in. And I even noticed, like, um, when they're loading some of the automobiles onto the ship in the movie, mm -hmm. there's this one particular car make. I'm not an expert on historical car makes. So I don't know offhand what the make model is, but I noticed there's this, like, like Merlot... Um, maroon colored vehicle that they're loading on and that exact make and model is the first car that they have in downtown it's the exact different colors same exact car and i always notice that car in downtown Abbey because it has kind of a unique look to it which is why i was able to pick it out right away in this movie and it's just so fascinating because like, like i said that show starts off in 1912 and, and and i'm such a fan of that show like i can totally see like where the dresses fit in um in this particular time like for the females and just like Downton Abbey 
um, because it's it deals with the aristocratic class a lot of the movie um, you see all the traditions everything it's it's the same like they like you you could almost watch this movie as like a primer to starting the Downton Abbey series um, <laughs> if you wanted to they, they would work except there's no characters they carry over but other than that it'd be like a really smooth transition and it's very apt what you said about how it looks like a period drama even though Downton Abbey is not BBC but I, it, you're right because it is of a movie quality because as good as the series Downton Abbey looks you can still tell the transition when they get to their their film uh, their mm. film excursions because it's still the same everything but it, you still get that extra oomph of a movie budget and so like that's why this movie would be a perfect bookend with like going through the whole damn series and then watching the the Downton Abbey movies because they have this kind of look to them with the increased budget and everything. So so like they almost feel like spiritual successors those movies do to this even though it's a wildly different subject matter but you can draw a through line of uh, like continuity I guess you could say continuity of world. Yeah, I didn't know that about that series, but that actually sounds like a really cool concept to start the show. It is, by the way, yes, a <laughs> good, cool concept. Oh, but uh, just because I'm, just because I was watching, the, I, I paused it during that scene with those guys who they won the tickets for in the bar. I was thinking about those guys, like how lucky, poor Jack, just so excited about getting on the Titanic. Like, how, how do you guys think Leo comes across here? Because I'm not too familiar with his younger work, except for Critters Three. I think this is the youngest I've ever seen to this day of his works. Yeah, and I own this movie called uh, Basketball Diaries. And I have a friend of mine who loves that movie. He's always telling me to watch it, and I just never have, even though it's been sitting on my shelf for like eight or nine years. I hear it's good. Never seen it. Yeah, I think this is yeah the youngest I know him as well. And I think he... I think it's kind of an introduction to the... Kind of stepping into the big spotlight of a major motion picture. I think this was yeah really well done for him, I think. Even though he seems like a completely different person now, you watch the stuff he puts out now, it's so dramatically different. It's it's weird to think it's the same guy, but I still think he was good here. So I've seen one film of his that was a year earlier, and that, of course, is Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Oh, oh wow. Okay, I forgot about that. By your old friend, <laughs> Caleb Baz Luhrmann. Oh, yes, Mr. Baz. Yeah, ooh, that's, that's his nadir. That's his worst movie around i think really but, oh my worse than uh worse than uh, 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 uh what was the one that everybody hates um i'm interested to hear which one's worse <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> i can't imagine what other one that has ewan mcgregor in it oh, oh wait oh crap i just had it in my head uh, oh you're talking about uh yeah, thank you. That's not bad at all. That's an amazing movie. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I don't much care for it, but I know it's beloved. Fair, fair enough. Okay, forgive me, but yeah, that's the that's the earlier movie I've seen of, of his. I know he was in earlier stuff as well, but uh, this yeah. is the, that's at least the one that I remember uh, when I watched it in... Was it Grade 10? I think it was Grade 10. Oh, wait. Was he on the sitcom Growing Pains? I may have seen him on that. Yeah, I think he was in that. Okay, I, I did see that, but I can't even connect that person to this person. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the critters three time period you know he's like a kid but yeah no i think he um i think he feels very confident in this role and i think as the the kind of heartthrob i mean I, th I think he sells it even though he's got that kind of 90s looking hair oh yeah i, I think he definitely 
wins me over and I think uh, for all the people who kind of hated him after this it's like oh he's not a real actor he's just this this kind of magazine model you know kind of kid no I, I think he really does put in put in the work to deliver a good character here in fact I was even surprised coming back because I've kind of seen the stereotype of people disliking him in this role yeah, I don't see it I, I, I think he's really good here for the most part I think he's fantastic and his, his performance overall is fantastic and I do think it's a fantastic transition of his early career to who we know he will be in his later career I think, I think it's the perfect turning point I think he's great and only recently uh, it was one of those damn promoted articles that like popped up on my Twitter or something um, and it was talking about like do you know all these actors like um, I forget what they called them and I, but like the stupid article I was reading was, I think it was implying that, that these actors like almost require these things to be, but I don't know if that's true. In, like, for instance, it's, it's almost like these actors who have like their own personal tropes, like, uh, like Tom Cruise, like has to ride a motorcycle, like in, pra like in practically any movies and he has to have like a riding a motorcycle scene. Um, Leo's apparently, which I didn't know until I read this article, was that he has to like toast the camera. And we've all seen the famous meme, um, either from Gatsby or uh, Django, which I was aware of, but I didn't even, when I was watching this movie in preparation for this conversation, when he did it, I, I was just, I was tickled to no end when he did it when he because he literally toasts like it's like practically almost looking at the camera it was so perfect to oh, see that it, that it was way back when in this movie because i don't know if you ever did it before this but um that was great but i only have one little criticism um on leo and perhaps his performance there's some times in this movie there's, there's multiple times uh, a lot of it's more towards the end or past halfway but there's these times when Leo's is like Leo is saying like, "Come on, Rose, or don't listen to Rose, or Rose, you know they're lying, yeah. or Rose, just, just, just focus, Rose, just focus, you're gonna make it." And he sounds weirdly contemporary, but it's not just that. Um, it reminds me because I've been watching all these James Cameron movies with you guys lately. Sometimes there's this element that weirdly comes off as like hammy or fake acting in some of these James Cameron movies um, mm. there was moments of it certainly in True Lies for me where certain characters are just speaking like real hammy lines and, and they don't really sound like they have the caliber of acting that you're used to from other movies or other filmmakers mm -hmm. and because I needed for other reasons as it pertains to this podcast I actually decided to watch T2, and I just finished it mm. before we got on today. And there was reasons I did that prior to this conversation. It wasn't just for nothing. But some of the hammy acting in that movie, since I just watched it, and I don't, I don't know how much of it is the actor, for all these situations I'm bringing up, how much is it the actor or the common denominator is that it's a James Cameron movie? Because just like um, John Connor in T2 mm. specifically... When he's saying some of these lines, it's like real hammy. Like, come on, man! Like, just say this and like do this, and and it's a little bit of a through line in in certain Cameron movies. And I don't know if it's if the common thread is 
another thing these scenes all have in common is it almost comes across as bad ADR. Yep, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> so that might be it. But it's weird because Cameron obviously has so many really good movies under his belt. But do you know what I'm talking about? This hammy acting that shows its head every now and then? 100%. Yeah. Okay, great. Then I'm not taking crazy pills. I do think the common denominator is ADR. Like a lot of the, the Rose stuff in this is during big action scenes when he's just like, yeah, just saying Rose over and over again. Come on, Rose. We got to get through this, Rose. And I think a lot of that is, yeah, just ADR dialogue that they just inserted later. And in, in during True Lies, I didn't mention this during the podcast, but you could tell any scenes that they shot around the helicopters or during big stunts was ADR. You could even see that the mouths don't always match up. And almost all of that stuff sounded clunky and bad. And I don't know if it's that James Cameron sends them off to do the ADR and he's not there. And they're just kind of reading their lines and no one's motivating them or telling them to do it better. or Because that was also T2, most of um, Edward Furlong's lines. I think like maybe 60% of it is all ADR because of that voice change thing. Where they had to go and redub a lot of his dialogue oh. after his voice changed halfway through production. Oh, so, so a lot of that you can't really blame for either, because yeah, it's that weird ADR stuff. So yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know what that is, but but it definitely is a consistent issue, I think, for this movies up to this point at least. Yeah, that's and it'd be one thing if it was just a one or two, but it, it's it's this weird thing, and I bet you if I dug deep for it, looking for it, I could probably find it in Avatar as well, um, with with certain bits. Oh, I mean, well, that's. That, that's a different issue because with Sam uh, is it Worthington? Yeah. Whatever his name is. I mean, he, he just does those flat, weird deliveries throughout that movie just in general, I think. But we'll discuss that. Yeah, so it's a weird thing because it does something with your mind as a viewer, as an audience member. It almost takes away because like I said, Cameron's films virtually all of them are, are such a high degree of filmmaking but then when you get thrown by the ADR or something, it tells your brain, oh, I can't take this seriously, you know? Or this isn't caliber stuff like the other great filmmakers out there. It subliminally gets, takes you out of it. But it, it's not egregious in this movie, but it does stand out. Um, and it usually revolves around Jack. Yeah, I did write in my notes, you can never forget the name Rose because he says it like 40 times in the finale. <laughs> I wrote that in there. Oh, but... Um... But Isaac, any thoughts on this this stuff before I, before I move along here? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, like on on I guess the or I guess two Leo. primary leads yeah. or yeah, Leo. Okay, yeah, I know we've, we've <laughs> only talked about Leo and not the the Rose. Um, um, yeah, I, he's got some energy to him. He's nice. Um, there's a bit of, I yeah, I I think I'm with Eric in a way of just like there's some. It, it doesn't seem like he's acting contemporary. Who's going to act contemporary, honestly? I mean, there's there's some method actors or those actors, non-method actors, who will, like, do it. I'll, I'll, Go watch Pearl Harbor. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's not Daniel Day-Lewis. There you go. Well, J- okay, I'll give him that. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis. Where is he in this film? He should be in this film. Because he's a guy who is well-known for, like, you know, taking his role. Not seriously, but certainly, like, getting into uh, the era that he's in. But... Uh, funny that he, same film uh, Lee will be in the same film with him in uh, was it Kings of New York or yeah. Was it? yeah yeah there you go that's pretty funny um, 
So I think I, I I'm not knocking him like saying that he's not being contemporary uh, of 1912 or like. Well, know. well, when I say contemporary, I actually meant he felt like a present day person. That's like yeah. thrust yeah. into the past. That's what I mean. Like I was just saying, like, I don't know if he's fully contemporary. I think it's a mix of both. Of like, listen, like we're gonna, we're doing our best that we can with with like whatever documentaries are available of the era that they can like go back and look at. I guess you can also look at film. And or like you know look at read books maybe, um, but you know maybe it's not it's not a hundred percent of the times, but I think he still sells it well uh, as being there. And yeah, I think I'm pretty much with you, Caleb. On like yeah, there's probably ADR lines here and there. Listen, we have yet to get a lot of these films on 4K. I think your question has been answered about like was Cameron present for like the ADR sessions no he was there not <laughs> yeah he's not the kind of guy to sit around in a studio he wants to be out there exploring yeah. Titanic or taking charge taking names uh, yeah. at the front <laughs> yeah and, and of course this is unconfirmed but I'm making a highly reasonable edu- highly educated guess based off of what we know of this no, man so far that's fair <laughs> so yeah I th- and I think yeah Leo does a great job um, acting uh, in this film my eyes sorry basic stuff um, yeah, just he convinces me. At least in that first in the first half, I guess he feels like a character. And like once the, sin, the ship starts sinking, does he kind of go into like you know survival mode almost? And kind of his his character's gone there. It's like, well, what what, what can you do? You can't escape this. This is not like in a Resident Evil film where you can like escape the zombies and get to like the next room or the next like area. This is you're on a freaking boat in the like middle. Maybe, sort of middle of the Atlantic like you can't exactly go go many places and not freeze to death so like you know if if he loses character in the second half of when the ship starts sinking I think that's what do you expect like at least in this case I, I maybe that is a poor excuse pardon me for saying that but like what do we expect of him to be like no we're gonna be like I'm an optimist I'm an eternal optimist I'm not gonna be a nihilist and subscribe to Nietzsche or something like that as they mentioned before in this film so I assume Nietzsche would probably be in this film recognized in this film as well but like you know what I mean right like oh no we're gonna we gotta just look on the bright side of life this ship's not sinking our relationship's not so like that's that's so nice I whatever you, you know what I mean yeah and I don't know if you want to get to that so early but it's understandable but I've got some issues in the way the characters come off during that that end sequence but that's totally fair i think we we will have that but uh that that's my thoughts for now we'll get more into that but now i guess we will go into uh the the, the other protagonist of course which actually i in fact i think she is the protagonist and jack is yes. not uh that, that would be rose because uh, i don't remember her last name yeah kate winslet yeah and i guess i'll start with you eric and what would you think of uh her in this film wow um of course you went there. <laughs> well, in the old days, I mean, back when I saw it at the theater and whatnot. Wait, 1912? <laughs> exactly. Uh, it was live stream. Um, Let's go. <laughs> uh, I I thought, oh, okay, yeah, she's cool, this new up-and-comer. And, of course, she had, like, a flurry of movies. Her, like, her career, you know, just, like, skyrocketed right after this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's all well and good. And um, But... Going back to those initial screenings, I was just kind of like, oh yeah, she, she's nice. Um, uh, bonus points for the full frontal. Um, uh, this is good. But seeing it now, I had slightly 
nuanced reactions compared to those early ones, which is she was just all right to me. Um, speaking mm. in fanboy lingo, she was all right to me in the old in the old days. When I watched her now, and I actually sat down and watched this movie, one of my first thoughts was like, "Oh my god, Kate Winslet was fucking hot in this movie." Um, I mean, she's remained gorgeous to this day. Yes, but. Definitely. I see her differently now in 2022 watching this movie. I was like, holy shit. Like, I guess this was like before my fascination with redheads or something when this movie came out. <laughs> um, Pre Amy Pond. But, you know, it's not exactly analogous, but um, I had watched The Asphalt Jungle uh, some weeks ago for the first time. And that movie is what it is. Great example of Norm film. But something I forgot about. Um, but then it, it showed up as I was watching that movie was um, that movie was kind of like a breakout role for Marilyn Monroe um, she, she plays like an incidental character she, she barely has six minutes of screen time in the whole movie um, but when she showed up in the movie when I was watching it I realized that movie being uh, it was like 49 or 50 or something when that movie came maybe it was 51 but either way when I was, saw her in the movie, and she's barely in it, but like you really notice her in those six minutes. And what I realized was, I've never seen Marilyn Monroe like this young before on film. Like this is the youngest I've ever seen her on film. And there was something about that, because I'm not this huge Marilyn Monroe fanboy either, but seeing her in that early role, I just thought, man, this girl's got it. Whatever it is, she's got it. And wow, like this, this is this is the most stunning I've ever seen Marilyn Monroe. And that was kind of the feeling I had seeing Kate Winslet now in 2022. It was like, holy shit, like, wow, this was like this was some kind of foresight um, to catch this rising star. Um, because you always know who made the actress. Was it the movie? Who made the actress, or was it the actress who? Who had something that got herself cast in the movie? You know who can figure that kind of stuff out. But she she's just stunning. She's just stunning, and it it, it kind of made me love and appreciate the movie more now because I felt like I was falling in love with her now for the first time. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, Isaac, any any thoughts there? Just on her, or I aren't to retort onto uh... oh, either either or. <laughs> Either whatever you got. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I think overall, I, I think it's shared by two actors. Actually, I think the um, what was her name who uh, played the elder uh, Rose? Um, Gloria Stewart. There you Gloria go. Stewart. I think she does a fantastic job as as her. Yeah. And even has some pep to her, which I, which I kind of like as well. Oh, she's uh, great. She, she didn't she's, appreciate you know, being aged up. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, yeah, she did great. Yeah, totally. And of course, she was in. I mean, she wasn't. She didn't have the most notable career, but she was t definitely in movies and, and whatnot since back in the day herself. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I don't know where Cameron found her, but like, yeah, I think she does a fantastic job of reminiscing. I know. I know it seems like pretty basic when you just say like she she's told to sit in her sit in a room and reminisce about like you know the days of yore or you know the event itself. <laughs> um, 
but I think she does a fantastic job of like eloquently translating what happened. I know. I, again, she's not speaking that long, obviously, but like, I, how long do you think she's actually like acting wise? I mean, I, they could have done so many takes. I, I have no idea. I'm just thinking like on screen how many like how long she's actually talking for uh, about the tale itself. Oh, the tale itself, not very long. Um, yeah, probably like not even barely three, four minutes. That's funny. Like, not even like may maybe like twenty five lines in of, of dialogue in total. I just mean about the Titanic. She has more. Than right, that. right. Yeah, just and that, that's just kind of funny when you think about that. But yeah, I, no, sorry. I think the actress she played the heroine in uh, the Invisible Man from nineteen thirty three. Oh, that, that's probably her most notable thing from her from her early works. Well, isn't that something? That's kind of cool. Um, so yeah, I think she deserves credit. I don't know if she's getting a lot. I, I don't want to like throw her in the I don't want to like say Kate Winslet's getting all the star to, starlight and you know, we're not giving her enough. I think it's shared by both of them. Obviously, Kate Winslet does a lot more. And so they really do have to be acting. F these, these two actors have to be acting for one. And I think they get it down pretty well as well. Um, with that, I think her character as well. Uh, I should be. I probably should have gone into that more with Leo, but like I think, um, like the character herself is is stuck. Like you know, just her her family has no name, or sorry, her family has no money, but they, her at least her mother uh, would still like to be rich. Um, at least in that class, excuse me. Well, yeah, they want to stay in the in the class. Yeah, yeah exactly. And she just feel, especially, I guess. Maybe even even though she talks about it a lot, I think the scene that translates best for me is when she's uh, after she's rejected Jack, saying that we can't see each other anymore, and she's you know having tea or whatever with her mom and the other ladies, and she sees this mother over across at another table, like you know, I guess scolding her child for you know this is how you have to act you have to act like this you know prim and proper and all that crap. Um, that's when she's just like that that. I think that scene says a lot. Although maybe, right. like, like maybe for Caleb's sake, like you could have cut all the other like <laughs> stuff with. Although to be fair, that stuff needed to be uh, all. All the explanations of like I'm part of this class mm -hmm. uh, could have been I'm doing this because of my family in a way. Um, that all, the only reason that needed to be there is for Jack's sake, so you didn't have to like. So he gets it, or maybe you didn't even need that at oh. all. I, I have no idea. And then, but I guess that scene with the mother and this daughter kind of got through it. But what were you gonna say, Caleb? Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. Oh, I was interrupting you, but <laughs> but for Cameron's kind of political messaging in the film, I feel like that's it's a very intentional choice that he's taking a, a lower class person having a romance with a higher class person. I right, we see how they're all treated as the disaster takes place, the way they prioritize the the classes. No, it's so perfect. And whenever you deal with stuff, especially this time period, and especially, well, predominantly English, and and whatnot, even though she's American, um, you have to get into this kind of stuff because yeah. again, that's that's part of the appeal of Downton Abbey is is seeing the people in the upper caste um, working alongside the lower caste, and uh, I mean that's, that's part of the fun of it. Uh, of I, part of the reason why I think people are so drawn to that particular period of fiction etc is is that contrast and and the titanic is just such a perfect like it's yeah it's tailor-made for that specifically because you get to see like both sides and obviously cameron spends a lot of time showing both sides 
Um, but it's especially helpful, I mean, not just with the disaster part of the movie, but just when you contrast um, the mm. proper ball social situation versus like the below decks. Yeah. Like, like that's, that stuff is great. I mean, not just in this, like in anything. Yeah, before we approach that, um, the scene right before that little party bit, when they have that dinner, when, when they invite Jack and Jack's kind of expressing his way of life and Billy Zane's there just like rolling his eyes like, ah, oh, this is this young little jackass. Like he's, he's so full of, I don't know what, but <laughs> I thought that, that scene came across really well. I thought all the performance was really good there. And I liked the, uh, the kind of different in mindset from all those kind of stuffy, boring folks compared to him. Feels like a, a breath of fresh air to her. And then, yeah, we get the two opposing parties with the, just the, the men sitting around talking about politics, smoking their cigars, and then yeah, having a real lively party below deck. So I thought that was really uh, well done as well. Yeah, and the other reason why that stuff's important, of like that, that one scene you, you brought up with the tea and, and Rose looking at the little girl, um, I mean, part of that is such an American thing. I mean, saying it from, a, from an international perspective, but... But it also keeps in line with just James Cameron's concept of uh, of like continuing his theme of strong individualistic female characters. Mm. Um, like it fits in line with his portfolio um, to have an element of that, and, and that's like the obvious thing going on there, which just fits with the filmmaker, but also with the material itself. It just fits. Yeah, and I guess kind of commenting on the, the way that they would use women to, like, reinforce wealth. Like, their family's kind of fallen apart, and they need, need her to marry into some family of money in order to keep the whole family afloat, that kind of thing. There's that. And then there's also, like, uh, there's obvious other symbolism that comes across with this type of uh, framing. Not, not just in this, but in other things, which is, you know, the Titanic itself is a perfect metaphor for excesses in wealth or excesses in thinking or excesses of narcissism Mm -hmm. of our way is the way and it's the best way and it's in in infaultable infaultable but (laughs) um but it's without flaw but then to have a ship go down and and you know part of the message of the story is um adage of pride comes before a fall or just like um just that when you think when you think you're unsinkable that's like when you're at your most um vulnerable um when when you you know in that excess of of thought of the concept and there's no other way than to be this way um when you lose perspective and 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 the sink of the titanic it doesn't just symbolize like perhaps the end of of thinking uh like so frivolously because it, it just ties into the era um i mean because there was some people at this time who thought that there would never be a great war again at this point in history mm. you know and you know yeah you know the markets will rise and fall but everything's gonna be great because we're like the best most modern people that have ever existed and great wars are behind us and and technology and life everything's just getting better so you know we'll just keep trucking along 
Um, and then again, bring up the caste system, which was very normal um, in in Western Europe and other places in the world. And you know, times are going to be a change, and it may take several decades, um, but eventually, times will change. And and Rose is supposed to be that rebel type of character um, who wants to go against the grain of society. Uh, Isaac, do you want to jump in there? Okay, so. I love what I just want to comment on what Eric said about uh, Rose's family, you know, not wanting to uh, stay af- or wanting to stay afloat. Okay, say that they, yeah. they sank <laughs> like the Titanic. Anyways, oh, no. uh, she turned out well, though. I'll say that she turned out well. Um, but I don't know if I have much to add on that, or maybe I do. I just haven't thought of it yet. This is my immediate thought is. Um, you know, uh, you guys are praising some of the scenes uh, of like the the classism being shown at hand. Uh, at hand, um, I wonder. I gotta ask how, if it, this is a good example, what would have made it a bad example? Like, what would have made it be like over the top or or not like, um, can't like Cameron missed the mark or he just uh, didn't realize it fully, uh, or just it would have been embarrassing. Like, like what what. What would be like the obvious mess up, if that makes sense, of this? If he if he didn't do this properly. Oh, well, I'll just say for me, I'm not saying I think it was like expertly done. I think it's in the typical James Cameron way, at least from this movie and then into Avatar. A lot of his messaging feels very simplistic, very much built for uh, a mainstream audience, not not an audience that would have to really think about his messages too much. It's it's right there in the open. I appreciate that it's there in one of these kind of bigger blockbuster type movies, but I, I'm not. I don't think it's necessarily uh, particularly sharp or particularly um, well done. It's it's just there, and I th- I appreciate that it's there. <laughs> okay, at least it's out in the. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. maybe I missed the. <laughs> yeah, I most I mostly agree with what Caleb. Okay, is. yeah, you mi- I misheard that. My apologies. I I think I know what you mean because like usually like a clever filmmaker, or clever storyteller would hide it with metaphors, um, and uh, allegories. So fair fair enough. Um, yeah, or at least at least make them feel a little bit more rich. This one just feels like I could get everything that I need to get out of this movie in a first viewing. Repeat viewings aren't going to enrich it that much. I'm just going to pretty much get the same thing, you know. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, I generally agree with that. Yeah. No, so, yeah, I guess, like, you know, you see, you, you feel lively. And, in, in fact, we, we again try to see, uh, we, we even have these characters, these these point of view, or the, you know, these, these fictitious uh, self-inserted characters almost on the boat. Uh, we see them go through, like, the class. Uh, to show the classism, like all the way down from like the top of the ship, all the way to like well, not the crow's nest, but from the mm-hmm. top of the ship to the boiler room, uh, they they see it all basically. They go, they, they pretty much go everywhere in a way. They go like on a lifeboat. And... Oh, I guess we could have spent more time with those poor yeah. guys. <laughs> um, like I mean, we could have got to know maybe one or two of them because they had it worse than anybody. Oh, but yeah, um, seriously, I, I mean, maybe there's you know something to bring up in in the second part of this podcast series. But something I had read just in preparation was um, typically guys worked in the boiler room and ships like these, aside from the fact that it was grueling work, um, apparently uh, guys in that profession had like a really high rate of suicide. Um, oh, wow. Wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, not too surprising. Yeah, I hate to say bad. that, but like, yeah. No. But if anything was skipped over, we, you know, we, yeah, we do see them at moments, at key moments. 
but we never none of them are I mean, maybe make it a four hour movie uh, to have a plot line with the one of the guys shoveling coal um, but but yeah they almost get a little bit uh, looked over in the grand scheme of things yeah and I was going to say uh, one of the difference and I feel like this is pretty consistent with the 90s disaster movies compared to the 70s ones where the 70s ones never had a particular POV or at least most of the time they didn't most of the time it was a complete ensemble and so you would get all, all these different storylines going on this one because it's so focused from Rose's POV I, I do think that some of those plot lines could have been more richly uh, handled if we'd seen more fleshed out characters than just in her immediate vicinity there oh that's interesting I know what you're saying I get what you're saying yeah, like we see little bits and pieces. Like we see, I really appreciate them, including those uh, the guys who play the music. We see them kind of highlighted as the all the chaos is going on. I think that's a great moment. I think that feels very much in tone with those '70s disaster movies. But if we could have had more characters, more more characters of them kind of going through it, or more characterization, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Also, we see uh, Jeanette Goldstein and her three kids, or is it two kids? We see them a few times throughout the movie, like when they first board the ship and then when all the disaster is going on. Again, if we could have had more stuff with her there, it wouldn't feel as much of just like kind of a, I wouldn't say a cameo, but just kind of added color is what it comes off as. Or I feel like we yeah. could have had a real character there in the old school world. Agreed. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, but spe- speaking of some of the other cast uh, that we get here, uh, we get a mix of um, character actors, some of them playing real uh, characters like um, Kathy Bates playing Molly Brown um, which by the way Isaac for that other Titanic series I'm hoping that we can rope Johnny into watching the unsinkable Molly Brown Ooh. Uh, 1964 musical that uh, revolves around the Titanic oh my gosh how did that thing not sink like you know the producers <laughs> uh, in the universe play did <laughs> um, but I was happy to see Kathy Bates in there and I think she adds a nice flavor uh, she in particular feels like someone that you might find in a BBC uh, kind of drama. Like she feels a little bit. I mean, I mean, I get that her character is meant to be kind of like a, a showbiz like type of person, so she speaks different and she's you know got that very particular cadence and all that stuff. But it does feel a little bit movieish to me. Um, I don't know if you guys felt that as well. Did you say movieish? Yeah, like like it didn't feel like. Uh, like she was doing a natural performance it felt like playing it up kind of performance if that makes sense um i don't know what the term is for but it just reminds me of like when they have random american characters appear like in british things especially period things Mm. um uh you know i I don't know what that is and and maybe both things are true at the same time um but yeah it happened i don't know what how to describe that uh when you get that American actor show up in a British production where they play the American. Um, yeah, and the, the thing is, Jack's American. It's almost like a trope. It, it is a trope. Yeah. He is, he is, but she, but, but she's more the trope. She's the one you more commonly see, which is it's that American new money um, mm. trope uh, intermingling with like the prim and proper British and the more subdued British aristocrats. Because, um, again, they play on that same thing at times in Downton Abbey when an American shows up. And and so I don't know how much of it is Kathy Bates or it's like this is just how it's done um, when you have a brash American 
rubbed up against some stuffy Brits. And I do like the the role that she plays in the movie. I just do think that her character, or at least her performance, I should say, stands out as feeling a little bit more like a like a not a character that doesn't exist in a real story or a real uh, a life. It feels very much like a movie character. So, so I don't know. If that... Yeah, I mean, maybe we, maybe we're saying the same thing with different words, but yes. But I don't know how you go around that though. Like, it, it seems like it's it's what will be. Yeah, could be. Yeah. But um, we also get uh, King Theoden, speaking of uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, playing the captain there. Absolutely. And I always love seeing that guy, and I think he does some really good work, especially in the later half of the movie. He's amazing. I kind of thought he was also the same actor who played um, the guy with the finger bones in Game of Thrones, but it's not the same guy. Um, but I got him kind of mixed up in my head. But he's definitely King Theoden. And yeah, he looks just like the real guy. I mean, with the beard on and everything. <laughs> yeah, they definitely. I, I feel bad for that that character. I mean, they even kind of take a little moment to discuss, like, oh, he was just acting in his element, and he had no idea that this ship was not his usual type of ship in his element, and that's really what fucked him. So you got to feel bad for him in his casual ways. But there's a moment near the end when this pregnant woman comes up to him as the ship's going down. She's like, Captain, like, what do we do? And he just looks at her, looks at the baby, and then just turns around and walks away. He's he's just he's got no way to react to any, anything anymore. Yeah, I think that's a very powerful moment. It is. Um, I don't know when we should start talking about. I mean, I guess we could talk about the romance a little bit more before we. Oh, oh wait! While we're touching on like ancillary characters. Oh sure. Um, uh, Victor Garber. I never knew that guy's name, I, and I feel like he's a weirdly unsung character actor um because he's like i think people recognize his face but have no idea where he comes from or what what he's done uh he's the one who played the guy who had designed the plans for the ship in the movie oh yes Mm -hmm. he's like the tech expert every time they ask you know about this and that but that actor like i feel he's just an unsung character actor like he appears in so much but I, i i think people just forget who he is um, I mean, he's quite great in, uh, like, currently in, uh, he plays a, a fairly significant recurring character, like in the Orville, for instance. Um, oh. Yeah, and he's just been around all over the place, and, you know, I, I don't know, I just like seeing him. I forgot that he was in this movie. Um, David Warner, R.I.P., his character that he plays so well is obnoxious, but I just mm. like seeing him. Uh, on screen uh, and then Billy Zane dude I don't know that guy oh uh, yeah and he's very why Why do his eyebrows have to be so distracting all the time oh he's distracting he's a distracting actor there's something about him that's just but I mean I guess it works well for this particular character that you're not supposed to like anyway but it just seems so weird uh, and a new thought I had about Danny Nuzzi, or the one who plays Fabrizio. Oh, um, wow. for, I just saw I just saw Sandlot for the first time a couple weeks ago. He was he's he's briefly in that movie, fantastic. But the other thought I had about seeing Fabrizio in this movie is, in case you wondered, um, uh, what guy Mancini looked like in real life. <laughs> um, oh no! So similar in the face, so sim- except. Fabrizio was a little bit more olive-complected, where the real guy was a little bit more pale-complected. 
But face wise, that was my old roommate, previously mentioned on the podcast. Oh, that's um, funny. Yeah, I will say, uh, Fabrizio, many of his lines are either bad ADR or just a bad accent. But he, some of his <laughs> lines come off quite poorly. I think. I I mean, it works for me. But you're right. Like if if I didn't have such affection for this movie, he does almost come across as like a plumber from Brooklyn or something. I'm like, what's your favorite pizza pie? Like, is is almost like this crazy Italian caricature. Um, like for yeah, forget about Kathy Bates playing the stereotypical American. Yes, that's you, true. Oh my God! Like, what do Italian people think when they oh. see this Fabrizio <laughs> hamming it up? Yeah, just because you mentioned uh, Mamma Mia, Billy Zane and and David Warner, I do feel like uh, not performance wise, but those two characters are, I think, the least least interesting part of the movie. I, oh, they're so terrible. I get that they're unnecessary, especially Billy Zane. I don't know about his his bodyguard david warner i don't feel like that character need to be there really really except uh maybe they were like oh billy zane isn't threatening enough like there's that one scene when he kind of blows up on rose maybe they're like we need to have this this more enforcer element of him to make him seem more like a, a tough guy but i don't know it just it didn't play I, I feel like we didn't need that i was i was like man who is this guy who is so dedicated to his job that he's like such a full-time a-hole like it reminds me of like like if a teacher ever got onto like specifically like in school or something like like where they made their mission to like bust you and you're just like dude do you have anything else to think about do you have to be so obsessed with like change chasing this love struck couple like all over the damn ship or or like when um, Jack gets chained to the the pipe, and the master arms, I gotta go, and oh, well, I'll just sit here. Fuck that! Like what? So you can just gloat? Like fuck that! Just walk away. He ain't going nowhere. Like it's it's almost like I said, going back to the school teacher analogy. It's that kind of person who like you just get off on this stuff, like torturing kids. Like like what is your deal? Like are you you really that messed up in the head that you seem to enjoy this um, part of your job too much yeah and I, I was thinking a little bit again of true lies with the kind of cartoony villains there too like it just feels like uh, and we'll, we'll definitely discuss this with Avatar I feel like oh yeah in the later half of James Cameron's career he just didn't really know how to do villains anymore and I, I just don't feel like that element works almost at all and that's why I complain like during the the disaster stuff did we really need that whole conflict with david warner like sh- uh, even billy zane shooting at him i was like what what is this ad at this point in the movie i'm okay so i don't know i don't know about all of it but let me go ahead and talk about one aspect of that um before i forget so you know as i'm going through the movie and it's 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 almost shocking that the iceberg strike almost happens at the midway point um, I mean, it's shocking that you still have that much runtime in the movie to go, you know. Uh, and, um, like, <sighs> this is a weird thing. So, obviously, I've seen the. I mean, once you've seen it the first time, you obviously know how it's all going to turn out with the characters. That being said, I find myself um, unwillingly, every time I rewatch the movie, my brain can't help but try to find all the ways that 
a lot of the personal tragedy with our main characters could, could have been avoided and or my brain is always trying to come up with a way that Jack lives like like it just feels like there's all these ways he could have lived he just did this instead of that or that instead of this um, and so even though it's set in stone how the movie's gonna turn out my brain is always trying to like retcon it or something uh, as I'm watching it and every time they get bogged down with oh he stole the thing and oh it's like oh god damn it he has to get chained to that thing and then the water's gonna be coming in and oh fuck just get off the ship already and like Rose has like multiple times to get off the ship and it's like oh my god why are we doing this um and so you know earlier in this conversation you said you know maybe they could have cut that whole thing or much of it and I'm totally there part of me is totally there with the, yeah fuck this cut all this shit out um but then another part of me is like but it still does like the obvious manipulation that Cameron's doing with the audience of of forcing Jack into these untenable situations um as the ship is going down but isn't that part of the appeal or fun of it you know what I mean like like in a slasher film, you have to have like a certain amount of random deaths or silly deaths or easily avoidable deaths. And you go, oh, why couldn't they just fix that? And then that person would have got killed that silly way. But then that, that's like defeating the whole purpose. And doesn't that heighten the tension appropriately, I guess, that you have to deal with these stupid speed bumps? You know what I mean? So isn't it by design a love-hate relationship with some of these stupid contrivances? In other words, I'm just saying I'm conflicted, but I don't. But it, there has to be a certain amount of that, doesn't there? Of these stupid things to to heighten the tension. Yeah, I I do agree in in some ways, but I feel like at a certain point you have to be like, okay, this movie is is getting way too long. We need to find some way to trim this up and make it more smooth, or else you're going to lose audiences just in terms of the length itself. So. Yeah. It- that's probably the better balance is to trim some, but because I always notice in other movies, like the opposite effect, where um, I wish I had the, some of the titles right on the top of my head, but I I bring it up in other movies and television where so and so gets captured, and then in real time of watching movie they're like literally freed like within four minutes, <laughs> and I'm always like what the fuck. Like, I'm pretty sure it happened, like, in Star Wars or something, like, when they captured Rey. And she's, like, literally out of captivity, like, within five minutes of of screen time. You know what I mean? And it's like, wait a second. Was that even perilous? Like, if they're already out of it so quickly? So, yeah. Well, Isaac, any thoughts on these, uh, the villains here? Oh, I think Isaac has thoughts. (laughs) Oh, there's so much. There's, There's quite a lot. Uh, sorry, I was getting distracted <laughs> by the film itself. No, just because it's a good film. Yeah, you gotta jump in. I because I was I was gonna move on. I was I was like, oh wait, maybe Isaac has something to say here. <laughs> I like the character actors a lot, and I'm going way back. So I don't oh know. yeah, it's see, that's like, why I gotta jump in. <laughs> you know, yeah, just I enjoyed Kathy Bates as I, I liked that she was like a team player of of Jacks, and she kind of I guess like is a fan of I guess rag to ri- rags to riches or just. She, she's looking out for him. I don't know if that was the real Molly Brown or not. Um, but even if it was... Vic- <laughs> that she had an affinity for Jack? <laughs> or maybe not that, but just, like, the, the poor people. I mean, then, then again, she yeah. wouldn't have, like, uh, been down there with everybody. But 
Yeah, you know, I, I enjoyed her performance. Um, seen a lot of other character actors there as well. Victor Garber, uh, I think he was Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar. One of the two. Either that or Godspell. Oh, really? Actually, no, it was God. No, Godspell. Sorry, it was Godspell, not not Jesus Christ Superstar. I got the two of them. Hmm. I might have to check that out just to see a younger him. He also played the uh, uh, Daddy Warbucks in the, the 90s Annie movie. Oh, I never saw the 90s version. <laughs> and I also know him as the uh, second half, and I mean literally second half, of Firestar uh, in uh, DC and or um, the CW's Arrow, or not Arrow, that too, uh, Flash. Oh, Flash. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I knew he was in the Flash verse somewhere, and that's what that's who he was. I guess he was also in Legends of Tomorrow for like br- briefly. Oh, he was in there for a while in Legends yeah. of Tomorrow, which I thought was really cool. Before yeah. he left, so you know, that, that, that's where I also know him from. Um, and he was also in Argo. Well, if we're going through his filmography, I first knew him as uh, Jennifer Garner's father on Alias. That's the first time I ever had any idea who this guy was. My introduction to him as an actor. Actually, it's funny when you said he was on uh, uh, the Orville, which I knew. Uh, I was like, I was gonna comment, it's like, oh, so that's why he like left uh, Legend of Tomorrow. He actually wanted to go to a different show. Or a show that actually was like written properly. Damn! Oh Damn. wow! Shots fired. And not written by moron. <laughs> well, the Orville is definitely written properly. I'll give you that. That's what I'm saying. Like it's not written written by morons. Damn! Oh boy. <laughs> or for morons. Excuse me. Pardon me. Yeah, that's just the WB stuff, or not WB. Uh, what is it? CW. It's whatever. CW. Yeah, that's ten years. Which, ago. by the way, as of this recording, they uh, they 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 finally like they 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 announced that they're gonna drop and or maybe not drop, but they're once like all the seasons are finished of like any like DC related superhero shows in there. That's it. They're yeah. done. Arrowverse is over. I. The writing was on the wall. Asterix for yeah, yeah. Arrowverse is over. I don't know like if like superhero shows on there are done, but just like at least you're right. Thank you for reading, Kim. Like Arrowverse is done. There we go. Thank you. Oh, but Billy Zane and, and David Warner. Let's if you uh... um on okay. So remember when you said like James Cameron doesn't know how to write villains? Mm-hmm. Let's be real here. Let's let's be real here. Let's let's go over this. In all of our movies that we've watched of his, in, in in Jimmy's like filmography so far, what are his best villains? Like, let's let's think about this for a second. I I, I had this thought as well. I have, I have a simple answer off the top of my head. And I Me think too. you're the same as ours, but go right ahead, say it. Yeah, basically the best villains are the ones that aren't really human. And that's exactly well, it. You know, he did Burke. Burke was done quite well as a villain. But you know why? Minor villain. That's fair. That's fair. And I think also Paul Reiser, Paul Reiser or Paul Reiser, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he he gets a lot of credit as well from that as well. Like his performance was incredible and top notch. Like yeah. he did like the perfect amount of like scumbaggery as that character uh, over the course of the film as he like reveals himself. And maybe it's also because it like was again like science fiction and it was you know fictitious. And I'm not saying like Billy Zane's character is fictitious at all. Well, I mean, okay, he's been like, <laughs> yeah. not that not that a character like that existed in real life, like a person existed like that in real life. But uh, he's obviously a character uh, fiction. Uh, but yeah, no, it's exactly it. It's that like Cameron can't right? Like literally, like if as you put it before, he's making these simple like ideas for simpletons uh <laughs> in like a blockbuster yeah for, for the masses for the masses so yeah they they do seem very simple and you know i mean 
like compare, you know, uh, Coffee, uh, Michael Bean's character in the Abyss, to, uh, you know, Billy Zane's character here and uh, his his goon. Like, I don't know. Like, I think I'm more compelled by Michael Bean, even if he is going more, you know, nuts, uh, just because of the underwater pressure getting to his head or syndrome. But like, you know, yeah, it could be could be a thing where. Maybe none of his villains were particularly strong, but he just got the right actors. Except for That's the Terminators, it. of course. The Terminators, both of them were just brilliant villains in those movies. Certainly. But. Uh, so, like, yeah, I can't... It's a, it's a good question, though, of, like, you know... I, I, other than, like, yeah, they're, they're, they're caricatures. They're, like, I think they're exactly what you want to be. They're just over the top. Um... Full of full of gags and whatnot, just full of ham and cheese. That's that's all I'm gonna say. And speaking of Michael Bean for a second, and I think wow, Michael Bean was supposed to play the Billy Zane character, or not supposed to be, but was considered, I should say. But when I was rewatching the movie in preparation for this, I almost thought I was recognizing Michael Bean for the first time in Titanic, because when I was watching it uh, yesterday. Or the day before, whatever, I lost track of days. But um, when I was watching it, when they were playing cards at the beginning, I thought that was Michael Bean in prosthetic, like playing the guy who lost, um, like the card game. It kind of looks like him, <laughs> and I kind of thought it was him until I verified right now that it wasn't him uh, playing <laughs> cards. But it, it guy kind of resembles him. Could have been like his thumb double. Oh, but just because I'm moving towards the the big incident during the movie when they hit the iceberg I would have mentioned something that I meant to bring up when we were talking about the uh, I feel like a TV movie aspect or a BBC drama what do you guys think about some of the like historical jokes like yeah they're like who's this Freud is he someone on the ship or Picasso like he'll, he'll never amount to anybody his art's terrible like did you guys think those moments uh, for humor wise did you think those worked or if you know, you know, and every college student right now is groaning. Or every, sorry, every college student in the psychology wing and department is groaning uh, at the mere thought and mention of Freud. I mean, can you help it? Like, just like Doctor Who, can you help it? Like, when they go to a historical time and they start spouting that type of dialogue? Like, I feel like you, you just can't help it. Like, when you're making a period piece, you're going to have stuff like that. That's fair. Well, I think that's also a bit of the contemporaryism uh, of the 90s yeah. coming in and just being like, they would... Okay, I could actually see, like, back in the day, some people legitimately asking that question and it not being ironic. But because <laughs> it's the 90s uh, and Gen X is... Well, I have a problem with Gen X and their, you know, deconstruction and postmodernism. Yeah, postmodernism. But... Uh, I, irony has to be everywhere. So, of course, of course... It's gonna be in this film. Of course, that line's gonna be in there. Yeah, yeah. Just it played as a little bit of TV for me, and I was like, ah, a little bit of easy humor. Sometimes James Cameron goes for that stuff, and it doesn't always play uh, for me. Um, but what does absolutely play, I think, is this the crash scene. I love when we see all like the it's like the pistons or whatever they are, those giant um, things inside the ship. I think those just look fantastic. Oh yeah. And then the two guys up there, uh, and the the bird's nest, as you say, or the crow's nest, and they're like, "I can smell ice." Like I I know when it's coming. I liked just having that little moment of changing the perspective to those those two during that scene. I thought a lot of that stuff played really well. I was in Cranston Guildenstern. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's fair. 
Not even like seeing the, yeah, like them tr trying to avert it, doing the reversing. You just saw the panic of those people. I think that's like one of the only times that we see completely out of Rose's perspective, actually. I knew it was a welcome change. I think they did that scene really well. Yeah, no, I don't know what to say. It was, it was the big moment. And, I mean, you go back and read about it, you understand that, you know, how much this was based on real accounts. But it works when you're watching the movie the first time when it's like, it's not like they were like, oh, shit, we, what, did we just hit something? Like, like when you're backing your vehicle and you go, oh, shit, what just happened? Mm. But it, to actually see it, you know, like well in advance... Like when you know when this, you know it's a great metaphor for when you see something coming down the road that's going to derail your life, but even though you see it, there's like nothing you can do about it, even though you see it in good time. And so it is. Fun's not the right word, but it definitely works up, upon your initial viewing to feel that passage of time, like oh shit, there's an iceberg and there's nothing we can do. Just like we can't turn this thing. Um, and that's just a great metaphor for a lot of things. Mm. Like when people, when they start like investing, like let's say in a private company, um, like, you know, you're putting all your money into this little mom and pop restaurant and like, hey, we got to get out of this. Don't you realize we've already sunk in this month? But then it's a weird psychological thing when you're just like, no, we just got to keep going. Like what? That's not how this works. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. You know, we gotta change course. So it's, it's an interesting metaphor that just happens to mirror what really happened. Yeah, and I do think it's a really great scene when Victor Garber comes in and shortly after that is talking to the captain and those guys and he's like, oh, no, no matter what, it's sinking. We're, we're already past the point. And everyone's just kind of stunned, like no one knows how to react. I thought that was a really impactful scene as well. And also seeing all the guys, like you mentioned, the, the lower decks guys, fuel in the boilers seeing all them scrambling to escape some of the shots are even making me think of uh, Alien 3 when they're all trying to get through the doors before they close oh I was thinking more Wrath of Khan but yeah of course oh that's fair I mean fair. I was thinking of the Abyss when, oh yeah know, yeah mm. when Bud's you know trying to he's trying to get through after you know three of his crew mates are like you know locked in there and you know in the, after the towing cable comes down and they all like you know the start part of the oil rig starts flooding, and then he leaves, and his you know ring finger gets caught in the door there. That's what I was kind of thinking of, although it was you know a little less dramatic and whatnot. And <laughs> if only somebody had like tungsten steel as uh, as a ring, uh, that would have kept the doors up properly. Nobody yeah. <laughs> oh, I see you had much to say about that uh, the crash scene. Uh, apparently, it was Jack and Rose's making love with each other, uh, or uh, sorry, not even making love. Well, it was beforehand, but uh, them kissing distracted both the guys in the crow's nest that uh, did not make them detect the ice. So it's all Jack and Rose's fault <laughs> that the Titanic sank. I guess they were talking about them and looking down there before they. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's noticed. Uh, so, well, again, one could say like, uh, would that have like made a difference? Um, which is funny because I forgot about that. I was like, "Oh wait, so is it subtly implying that like the guys in the crow's nest like were distracted or, or what?" Yeah, and I'll say, uh, up to this point, I was mostly enjoying the movie. I was like, 
like, ah, it's, it's feeling a little plodding. We're already at like an hour 40 up to this point, and it's mainly just been romance. And I'm like, ah, the romance is working decently, but is it really carrying an hour 40? I don't know. And we also haven't mentioned uh, James Horner's score. But I do think, especially in this, this romance half, I feel like he's really leaning into his more corny instincts. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and so some of that stuff was not playing super well for me. I see. Interesting. So, and so, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's just it, it. It seems that you're not. You're just like James Horner's a hack. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He's the best hack. He's the best hack. He hacks himself. <laughs> yes, but he's the best for. But it. in this movie, he definitely has a penchant for the corny, like that scene where uh, Fabrizio and. And uh, Jack are like, I'm on top of the world. And the music like plays super triumphant, and I'm like, oh my god, like this is this just feels a little a little silly. I liked it. <laughs> I ate it up, <laughs> ate it up like cheese. Yeah, yeah, I did too. Well, that's fair. That's fair. fair but yeah, I think you're right. No, I, I, I see. I, it, like, but come on, Caleb, you gotta understand that this is like the triumphant return. Like James Cameron and uh and, and james horner like the the buds they got back together man they like they, they mended their relationship it's true it's true after the disaster and the fiasco that was aliens and so like they made up and you know this was his triumphant return and it returns with caleb's disapproval <laughs> no no i i do think he does some really really great work especially in the second half i just think for the the romance stuff it feels a little little overly uh, sappy to me at times. Uh, but I do think there's some really interesting compositions as well. It's just sometimes it just it maybe just misused. I'm too biased on the composer to like, think critically. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, although I, I mentioned I watched T2 earlier. And <laughs> I have to say that for the first time, and I hadn't seen that movie in a long time either, all the way through. And I have to say, aside from the callbacks to the original score... I thought it was absolutely dreadful. The Terminator Two. Uh, oh, interesting. Hmm. It, it it reminded me of all those cheap '90s shows um, uh, that were in the not exactly, but they had the same production values as there was these low budget shows that were reminiscent of the production of X Files, except worse. <laughs> um, and they all had that that horrible incidental synthetic music that was a big step down from the 80s um it was i don't know it's not good yeah i don't remember what me and isaac said on that but i i do remember that we said that we liked the the 80s version better at least i think that's what we said yeah the, the t2 soundtrack sounded like it was the like the temporary track was left in to the final movie like the, that it was not intended for like public consumption. Oh, but um, yeah, I guess where do we go from here? I mean, do we jump right into the uh, all the disaster action, or or where do you guys want to go? Yeah. Well, uh, for I guess sort of leading into the disaster action, uh, what do you guys think of all the props? The props. Uh, I think we gotta we gotta we gotta give that some you know I gotta give that some light at least again all the all the crew members all the visual effects artists who were helping out here like. God, we got like just like the lower class. We keep talking about all this stuff. It's like we got to talk about like you know all the ones who actually did the work on this movie. Like congratulations, like seriously. Yeah. Like you guys, you guys. 
I don't know, again, what awards this won. I didn't check. But, like, man alive, like, whether you hate this movie or not, like, you gotta admit, like, the craftsmanship and effort put into it by all the blue-collar workers and whatnot, whether you're at the computer or you're, you know, at the at the carpenter's table, like, good job, buds. Like, seriously, like, a round of applause for all of you guys. Like, I, I'm sorry if I, yeah, the I, I, I don't sound sincere on that. I legitimately mean that. Like, good on you guys, because, like, you made this masterpiece and or this disaster work, like golly it just the amount of hours that they had to like work on this thing like even the inside of the like the interior i know it's probably fake mahogany or whatever you know like really good wood but like you know the staircase uh in the in the you know the dining hall like goodness gracious that thing looked beautiful like well done of with all the sets and i guess i should mention again uh they brought in the, the great peter lamont once again to do the sets and that guy i mean uh, Eric, when you were doing the Shaken Out Stirred back in the day, you guys would compliment all the time. All the great set work. Wow. And, yeah, Peter Lamont. Those elements of our conversation. <laughs> yeah, Peter, Peter Lamont, I think, is just a brilliant uh, set designer, and yeah, his, his work is always top-notch, and it, it continues to be so in this. So, <laughs> um, All that stuff, yeah, ditto, fantastic, obviously. I, I already mentioned, I, I just love anything that, like, hues so close to like original photographs and things like that so that, that's all perfect but of course it's it's funny how we were talking about bad cg just prior to this conversation uh, mm. with black panther and mcu and all that other stuff because i don't know if people forget or people who are like millennials or younger forget that okay yeah, Cameron did the first stuff with like Abyss, but more more notably in public consciousness with T two with the whole um, the morphing technology like for the T one thousand, etc. And then most people know that there was Jurassic Park, that was the next big step in CG in film. And then I very clearly remember that I think. This was the first most notable example of a couple things. One being um, for CG technology. One aspect was it was um, it was something that wasn't like a specific creature or something. Like it, it was more than that. It was obviously like a set piece. And the other thing was it was the first significant use of CG to represent something. Like an everyday thing. In other words, not a fanciful thing, not a sci-fi thing, not an extinct dinosaur, but an everyday, like everyday type thing. So like the first time CG was used like in a drama film as opposed to like a sci-fi movie. Um, and, it, and it really like, I think for the first time really opened up people's ideas to like how this could really be used, like to do like historical type things. and and used for settings and you know how we were just talking about those MCU movies like for this being the first application of CG in this way um, I, and being now uh, 24 years later I think it holds up for the most part like I, th I think it still really holds up and it, and it looks fantastic and it and it shouldn't be overlooked the significance of the accomplishment yeah. um, 
of it because it's so easy to look past it when you watch the movie now it's so easy just to just gloss right over that part um but, but they pulled it because by comparison i forget what year um apollo 13 came out but it was one of the first catalog movies that i got on 4k and that movie has not aged well with certain scenes and uh one of those scenes that didn't age well was um just prior to the the um the rocket taking off in the movie uh like there's these weird panning shots of like the the rocket pet launch pad area <laughs> and it <laughs> it looks like a video game from like the late 90s or something um it's really bad like the cg it it's it's really flat and really bad and it, you can't look at it with modern eyes because there's no way you could possibly believe that that's real um through modern eyes now but this like really holds up for its time, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's only a, a couple moments that kind of stand out, and that's that's really something for for '97. There, there is some like a few shots like when it's sailing that I can either again maybe maybe a 4K release of this could wipe that all away. Most likely will. I'm watching this on standard definition, so like you know you can still see it there. Maybe maybe there is maybe the one on Amazon is 4K. I I don't know, but I feel like, again, a, a 4K, good like a good like transfer. Man, I don't, I don't know what's transfer, but like you know, a, a good uh, 4K release would probably do it well uh, if it were uh, done and kind of remove some of those like early CGI weirdness. Not the not the ship like in the beginning. Of, uh, what was the, some of the weirdness that you noticed? I don't know. Maybe it was like just weird matting, but like. Whenever the ship was like in the light and it was sailing, um, well before you know it goes down. Was it like the texture of the ship or like the way? Yeah, either like, the te texture, the, the lighting. Maybe yeah, maybe whether the lighting was like because uh, not all of the ship. I know the ship was like a real ship, it wasn't fully as big as the Titanic, of course. Um, well, certainly the the parts weren't sinking. Yeah, that that was yeah obviously practical. Yep. But, like, again, when it was sailing, maybe it was, like, CGI back. I don't know. Maybe it was, like, the weather effects. But I just felt like some of that stuff early on was a little... Okay, by modern standards, shoddy. But for the time, you couldn't give less of a crap because, well, it's 1997 and you're still like, wow, this is cool. If anything, I thought some of the, the green screen was a little bit more jarring. I mean, it was fine, but I noticed some of that as being a little bit more dodgy. Um... When, uh, when whether it's Jack and Fabrizio or Jack and Rose at the um, at the uh, the bow um, when they're doing the whole King of the World thing, like I almost feel like you can see the green screen like around their silhouettes and around Rose's hair. It's not just that. Also, it's kind of funny. Not even just green screen, but I also got a question. Like, okay, when they were literally on the bow, um, acting, you know, acting out like I'm the King of the World. Uh, I was like, okay, I've been on boats. I, I technically was on a boat last night, and it gets pretty windy on there. And they, it was not like windy at all. I, I wouldn't say at all. Okay, but like seriously, like it, I've like it, it can get windy. Not to mention, they were like in the middle of the Atlantic. Like they should be freezing out there. And Rose is just walking around. Oh my goodness! In like her nightgown. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! And, and they get soaked in water, and they're still not freezing. Oh, don't get me started on the freezing though. 
Yes. Well, there's that too. But I gotta question this. Like, was all the breath CGI? Because they were filming in Mexico, wasn't it? Oh, I barely saw any breath. But if it if it was, I'm sure it was. Yeah, affected. Uh, this was like at the end when everybody was the you know, lifeboats are being. Um, what is it? When the lifeboats are uh, being lowered. I noticed a lot of breath there, and I was like, "That's interesting that it's they're breathing there, but like it's not CGI breath because I don't think you could do CGI breath back then." But yeah, I was gonna say I don't think they had. Well, I don't think they were up to that back then. Yeah, they did say that James Cameron intentionally kept the water uh, quite cold, so it, it may have just been yeah, kind of freezing out the actress up there or cooling the temperature in the the big room that they're in. That's fair, yeah, that makes, maybe that's it. I even saw that Kate Winslet said that she got hypothermia from filming in the, the cold, the freezing cold water. Sheesh, not the Yeah, the and time. I can totally get that, I mean, the hypothermia, but speaking of the freezing water, like, the scenes when they're still below decks and the water's coming in and they're trying to get out oh, the second time, I was like, oh mm -hmm. man, we already got out one time, do we have to get out a second time? Yeah. But, but, watching it and thinking... They don't seem to be reacting to the frigid temperature the water should have been. I realize it was cold in real life on set, but it wasn't like 28 yeah. degrees Fahrenheit, um, like the real um, Arctic water. Like they should almost expired, not from drowning, but they should almost expired from the cold temperature of, of their water interaction below decks, much less forget about <laughs> later in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like they weren't freezing enough, like, um, when they were in contact with all the water inside the ship. But that's, I mean, maybe that's hoping too much <laughs> for too much realism to somehow reflect that in the movie. Yeah, and I can't complain too much because that's absolutely my favorite stuff in the movie. I, ever since, uh, actually it could have been this movie now I think about it, but I was more thinking of Deep Blue Sea. I just love sets being filled with water. I just think it's so cool. It's one of the reasons I love the Poseidon Adventure as well. Just seeing all the water in, in places that it shouldn't be. I just think it's so cool. And they do this thing in this movie, which in some ways breaks the realism. Where it's, you can tell that the, there's like lights on the ground that the water's like being reflected. Of. There's always like this blue light under there. Yes. And even though it doesn't necessarily feel realistic, I just think it looks just amazing on screen. So... Here's a funny thing, just in the water aspect, like when, so when, um, when Jack's tied up, uh, for, by the Master of Arms for, you know, theft of the, uh, heart of the ocean, um, he, like, I, I just, this is not, like, commenting on the water, but, like, I, I kind of like how it turns for, uh, uh, uh Rose, it's kind of like her aliens, uh, uh, what was it? Abyss moment, almost, if that makes sense. <laughs> because she has to go down to rescue him, a la, like, Ripley with Newt. And then, it's also, like, Ali Abyss when, um, uh, Lindsay and Bud there, or Virgil, are mm. trying to, like, uh, they're inside the submersible and it's about to fill up with water, and they have to desperately get out, so I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of funny. It's, it's, it's rhythmic like poetry. Yeah, no, that, that is fun. I could definitely see a lot of that in there. Yeah, and I will say, uh, if there's one thing that me and James Cameron just absolutely seem to share, it's a love of water on, on screen and on film. I, I just, I can keep going back to his movies over and over again because so many of them feature this, and this is one of the reasons I'm so excited for the new Avatar, just for all the water stuff. 
Like, I don't care what that plot's gonna look like. I know I'm gonna oh, really love seeing all that water. Yeah, there so. you go. <laughs> yeah, I like uh, another... No, no, yeah, this, the, the aspect of water itself is... Yeah, it's... It's wet. Yeah, it's kind of just... It's, <laughs> it's just sad. It's wet. It's wet. Um, and it does, it does make me question whether or not... Yeah, like, I know you were saying, like, disaster, but, like, if people were criticizing... Uh, when the ship is falling apart, if, if they were criticizing, like, oh, but it's a love story, like, can't you not, like, you know, get into it? It's like, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fair. I kind of, I kind of get that. Just as it's sinking, like, it, it does make you wonder. Oh, I'm sure they were loving it with the, the tragic love story. That's, people love that shit. <laughs> True. No, I had a fun fact of trivia, and I wasn't sure when to say it. Uh, that's fair. Say it right now, eh? Yeah, but did y'all come across this one? Um, that, if you cut off the present day scenes of the movie and, and just the parts that take place in 1912, that it's the, the runtime of the period parts is the exact time it took from the time the Titanic hit the real iceberg to the time it sank. <laughs> it, it lines up exactly. I think I somehow knew that, and that's not me like, oh crap in here. I, th I think I knew that somewhere. Yeah, maybe you heard it. And that's bizarre because funny. if you think, if we were on a Titanic today, oh shit, we just hit that iceberg. Shit, do you think we should get off this ship? Hold on. We have enough time to watch Titanic. <laughs> like, that's kind of a weird thought. Wait, <laughs> like, how long is our commentary right, or our, our, our uh, recording right now? <laughs> yeah, 2.30. Oh, man. Oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I also wanted to say uh, with the uh, the ship when it's kind of uh, the, the water's filling it up and it's starting to sink I love all the sound design of it creaking and buckling I think a lot of that stuff because I was watching with headphones I thought a lot of that stuff was great I agree I think that was also really well done yeah and in this section I mean I I, I think the movie's too long I I likely am not going to go back to it very often uh, but I think I could just sit down and watch this from an hour and 40 till the end just to listen to all this destruction and and the great water on screen. I, I just love disaster films for whatever reason. I think this section is a, a really great piece of disaster filmmaking. Uh, but I still do, I will say, even though I like the scene of Rose rescuing Jack and all that stuff, I, I do think that when we return back to the, the drama with Billy Zane, I just keep wishing that that stuff either was shortened or or wasn't there. It just, it, yeah, like you said, they have to go back down the lower levels twice it's like I, I just don't know what that adds necessarily maybe he yeah. really was like you know just aiming for what Eric was saying like maybe he was trying to do that where he's just like oh yeah it's about the same it's because remember like this is a guy that in aliens uh 50, you now have 15 minutes to evacuate the premises it's <laughs> like and he stuck to those 15 minutes so maybe he's doing the exact same thing we don't know he, he could be doing that are um, you saying that like Padding the film's runtime just so he could check that trivia box of <laughs> the movie. No, I mean, that's valid. It's interesting. You know, it's such a stupid idea, but you, you know what? I'm just going with it. It's a rumor. <laughs> yeah, we're starting the rumor here. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, it was all on the inside. He's just, he knew it from the, from the day we started filming. But there still was some stuff. Well, of course, there was some stuff cut. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I read was I think there was a little bit more to the couple 
who we, the who we see embrace on the bed, you know, as the ship goes down. Oh, I love that. It's a great moment. I think they were they were supposed to rep- those were supposed to be real life characters, but we don't get it from just watching the film itself. Um, they were uh, they were based upon these two real characters, two real people who were um, heirs to the um, the Macy Department Store legacy. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I don't know if their actual name was Macy or not, but they were tied to that, and they went down and supposedly together uh, on the ship. Yeah, and I like that. I, I like to see the different ways that people kind of accept their coming death, like the captain just giving up and just going to stand at his wheel like he's going to die there, and then the the mom putting her kids to bed, even though she knows that they'll... Vasquez! Yeah, Jeanette Gold's seen back again. Yeah, and I had to look at that that word of that. She said they went like went to the land of whatever, whatever. I had to look that up. I can't remember what the word she says, the term, but it's it's the um, I guess it's from uh, Irish folklore. It, it's the land where like it's the make believe land, like where fairy tales happen, um, in in Irish or oh. Celtic traditions. Yeah, I think my favorite of those. Uh kind of accepting their deaths is the musicians. They're just up there playing and eventually they like, okay, well, it's been an honor playing with you. Like, okay, bye. And then one of them keeps playing and they just all go back to it together. I, I thought that was a great moment as well. Just it's cool seeing up. Because, yeah, how, how do you react to a situation like this? Like, you all know your death is coming. Oh, like, maybe a few you're going to live, but... And I like also seeing the, the way the officers kind of deal with it. Some of them falling apart, like the guy who killed himself because he shot someone trying to, like, charge the boats. And yeah, I thought I thought all that stuff was really, really well done. Oh, and did you guys, by the way, did you notice the uh, the cameo of Mr. Fantastic in there? Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> I remember that. Yes, I did. I, I never noticed it before, but I noticed it on this viewing. I think I noticed that after I watched Fantastic Four. So like, hmm. I watched Fantastic Four before I watched Titanic. Yeah, whatever happened to him, because he was, like, casting everything, it felt like, for, like, ten years. Yeah, I think he went to TV. And I guess he still makes some things now, but nothing notable that I'm aware of. Yeah, there's even that one, I wish I knew this actor, but I don't even know if I could point him out. He's kind of, he seems like more of a British, uptight guy. He's kind of weird. He's the one, like, loading up boats, and he's only doing them, like, half full. I just really like that guy's performance, like, his nervous, over-the-top performance. I don't know, really well done. Oh yeah, I I read an anecdote on that from the filming that um that when they were shooting those scenes of like the lifeboats and stuff that there was obviously characters who were cast as you know officers as and there's obviously people cast as um, uh, passengers and supposedly during filming of those scenes like just by design people were getting into their roles like just it reminds me I used to bring this up in training all the time about those. Um, famous psychological experiments where people pretend to be mm. prison guards and other people are assigned to be prisoners and, mm-hmm. and and how people start taking on the aspects of their roles. Well, apparently, um, like shooting some of those scenes with that particular guy you're talking about, um, like a lot of the, like the part where he says something about, um, like something about I'm going to start shooting you like dogs or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Apparently Cameron like told the actor like, "Oh man, I really like that. Like like do do some more of that." And the actor <laughs> didn't even realize that he had said those words. 
Oh, like wow. he was just in the moment, and he didn't. Even, he's like, "What? I said, th- I said what?" <laughs> so apparently, that was an ad lib that he didn't even realize he spoke. Oh my! Oh, he's just getting lost, <laughs> transported to a different time. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, but um, there was one more of those kind of uh, people just dealing with their death ones. It's one of my my absolute favorites, and that is uh, Victor Garber. He's just like standing in there. I think he's staring at a clock. Oh yeah, like, he sets the clock. Yes. And Jack and Rose just happen yes. to walk past him. Yeah. He just stops and says, "I'm sorry, I didn't build a stronger ship." I thought that was just a, a very powerful moment. I thought they did that very well. Goes down with it. Did they show um, Fabrizio's ultimate demise? Yeah, he gets crushed as he's trying to swim away. Oh. By one of those uh, falling uh, like smoke stacks or whatever. The smoke stacks, yeah. Oh. I missed it because I was looking for it. I, I definitely remember Tommy, so ridiculous, um, being shot. But what were you going to say, Isaac, about uh, Victor Garber there? No, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, no. He he goes down with the ship, and then the a hole who gets on the lifeboat, just like the slime ball himself, just gets on, and that one guy gives him that look. Yeah, just like, all right, fine. And that's that literally is a real life thing that happens, if I recall. Um, where that where that person actually did get on the wow. lifeboat? Or wait, wait. You know what? Hang on. No, 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 no. I retract my yeah, statement where's Johnny? because I don't remember <laughs> if that's true or not. Yeah. Or where's my family member to correct me? Like, I, I hold that thought. Yeah. Retract my statement. I'm not going to say anything yet. But it was at least a nice. It was a nice contrast. Go ahead. Yeah. What I think is especially powerful about that is that worker. He knows he's dying. He's already accepted his death, and he's just looks at that guy, the guy who's in some ways responsible for all this chaos and just accepts it. It's like, okay, send it down. Yep. I think that's... And, and I was thinking about that a lot too, all these people who are working for the Titanic. I'm sure they knew very quickly like, like, oh, the, there's not enough lifeboats for us. Obviously the richer class, the people who paid for their tickets are the ones going and we're just we're just gonna die here. Yeah. What a crazy what a crazy experience. I was looking at stats on the wiki. It had like the whole breakdown of um, children, women, men, and like uh, first class, second class, third class, and like percentage of survivors. Um, and it had a, a section that was just like staff who almost made up like a third of the complement of the entire ship. And they by far had the highest or the lowest survivability rate of all the different groups. Um, aboard the ship was definitely the staff yeah that's just that's just great i mean it's it's you get it but it's that's just horrible and one more thing about that actor or that character you were talking about the the one the the crazed officer uh, he reminded me of uh, a cross between a couple like he was a little bit of tim roth mixed with that that stuttering actor from um i was gonna say pearl jam um, Pearl Harbor, um, but he also reminds me for some reason of uh, the officer who's in Empire Strikes Back and Jedi. I think it's oh, Nero, yeah. the one who gets promoted, and he's like always mm-hmm. nervous. For some reason, I was getting those kind of vibes of that guy uh, in that character. Yeah, no, I could, I could see some of that. Yeah. Oh, but in the midst of all this, this in its way beautiful chaos. Yeah, we still got that Billy Zane thing going on there um and i i do actually really like the moment where billy zane and um leo convince her to get on a lifeboat and as she's going down they have their little talk and 
because uh, Billy Zane was like, oh, I've got this agreement. Me and Jack will get on the next boat and we'll, we'll see you later. And the two of them have their exchange when Jack's like, oh, you know, it sounds like you don't actually have the agreement. And I, I just thought all that stuff was maybe the bit to keep. Maybe we didn't need all the running around, shooting. But, but that moment itself I thought was really valuable to the movie. Maybe they could have just had Billy Zane hop on a lifeboat then and kind of end that <laughs> plot, but... Yeah, it was good, but man, Billy Zane's character continues to do despicable thing after despicable thing, like, throughout the end. Oh, he's just the worst. Yeah, and honestly, I, I do think part of it's the performance. I feel like if we had someone who doesn't look so outwardly villainous and someone who doesn't play him so petulantly, I, I don't know, it stands out. It, he, I find it distracting in this movie. It worked at the time, I'll say that. The first time I saw it, I thought he was perfect. But yeah, it's it's in hindsight all these years later that I agree with what you're saying. Hardly. Oh, and I also thought Rose's line, you unimaginable bastard. I thought that was a really corny line. I don't know if it was the delivery or just the fact that it felt kind of weird that someone would say that. But I just, I, didn't, I never thought that line worked. And I even when he was coming up, I was like, oh, isn't this that scene where she says a weird line that stands out weirdly? So even as a kid, I guess I remembered that line as weird. But, but Isaac, any any comment on these these bits here? Uh, when they go down to the lower decks a second time, I'm just like, just as as you mentioned before, this does kind of feel more like an action set piece than it does, you know, like a reason to be there. Mm. Um, like like you said, yes, the 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 proper term I'm thinking of is padding and or filler. <laughs> Well, fair enough. We have to fill the runtime uh, instead. I don't, yeah, I, I don't know what else could have been there. Just like more, uh, just seeing more destruction. I guess of like, look at all these, look look at this dining room filled with like, you know, this is where all the high class people were, and now it's where the water is. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, and some of that stuff's really beautiful. But yeah, like when they find the kid, I was thinking like, where was the editor for this scene where they find this kid and the dad? saves him and then the two of them die i was like the editor really should have stepped in and been like this this scene really doesn't add anything at all let's cut it oh, it's so damn terrible yeah cut that and you'll save like three minutes three minutes makes a difference like is it is it meant to like get the point across that like no one is safe like women children men like everybody's i mean yeah it has some type of confident purpose as you say but it's the Jeanette Goldstein putting her kids to bed scene does that much more impactfully than that extended moment there, I think. And I kept thinking that... Or I guess the, it's like the futility, futility of trying to do something good. Yeah, I kept thinking that James Cameron at this point in his career, starting really after The Abyss, where he was like, hey, the studio, they chopped out the whole message of my movie. It seemed like maybe it was in his, his contracts, like, I get the final edit, I don't want you guys interfering. And sometimes that works out for, for folks. Sometimes it leaves lots of room for bloat. I feel like this film has lots of bloat. I felt like True Lies had lots of bloat. And we'll definitely discuss that with Avatar as well. So I just feel like maybe a stronger editor could make his movies uh, a lot sharper than they are uh, in this half of his career. But where else do we have to go? Is there... I mean, I could go right to the... Uh, some of my favorite stuff at the end there when once they get into the water but is there much more of the destruction that you guys want to mention while they're still on the ship 
Uh, Billy Zane's character is a slime ball for using a little girl to get on a lifeboat. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, Complete and utter goof. Yeah, just Caesar hiding behind there. I was thinking about that poor kid, too. I was like, fuck, man. All these kids dying on this, this boat. Crazy, yeah. That's, like, in reality, that is, like, so dark. Uh, save for the other one. Save for, save for the stern. Save when we get to the stern. Um... Way back in earlier in the morning, sorry, I just I said stern. I just realized something I wanted to bring up before is the, like the contrast between when like Jack and Rose first meet, where it's like on the stern of the ship and she's wanting to commit suicide, yep. so he saves her. And there's that like you know misinterpretation of everybody like he's gonna have like sex with her and whatnot, and then they end up having sex. Uh, and then, <laughs> but then when they go on the they go to the bow of the ship and uh, he asks her to trust him and. Uh, put her on the rails, and you know, get that you know, scene of her, you know, in the Christ-like pose, uh, flying. I think that worked really well. I just wanted to say like, I like that moment, uh, or at least that you know, contrast between both scenes. Well, yes, yeah. that's a great poetic contrast. And did they say it, or was I just thinking it from somewhere else? That um, when they're hanging from the bow, uh, near the climax of the sinking. Do they do they actually say that this is where we first met, or is that just something I heard somewhere yeah. else? They do say it. Yeah, they say it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I will say during that scene, even though I think that's a, a great scene, I think the it's like so ridiculous in its way that this is real. Like it's like wow, like even even them themselves are looking around like holy shit, like this is so insane that the ship is just literally poking up into the air out of the water like this. But there is a moment where one of the guys falls off before it fully reaches its height and bounces off one of the propellers. And I did laugh at that scene. It, he, he was just spinning for a long time for one in the water, and I, I laughed. I also thought the CGI looked kind of funny and bouncing off that. I didn't laugh. I didn't think it was funny either. I, but I think, well, it wasn't perfect. I think the CGI was better than falling people in many other movies. It was a lot better, I think. So, I don't know. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Other than I think thought it was overall well done, especially for the time. Oh, but speaking of the great kind of use of sound in this movie, I do think once the ship finally does submerge and they, they are under the water and they separate and then Rose pops up alone and all you hear is just this cacophony of just screaming. I thought that was a really... Like, especially because I was watching with my headphones on. It had a very isolating and disturbing quality to it. I thought that was a really great moment. And just seeing all the poor people stranded in that water, like, whew, that's just so horrific. Yeah, no words can describe, you know, the actual horror that took place. Other than, like, everybody acted good. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, you want to discuss uh, Jack's uh, death scene there? I think it's about time. I think it's... I think we've pretty much gotten to everything by this point, so let's do it. Jack dies. <laughs> yeah, spoilers. Spoilers. Yeah, how did you feel like that scene played for you, Isaac? That moment there. Uh, when he sinks, this is I know this is not the thing, but like when he sinks, uh, I feel like I could see the bottom of like whatever <laughs> tank they tank, were in. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like. Okay, wait, why is there blue light under there? Um, I think it was blue light, right? Or am I, am I just, like, imagining things? It seemed like a little bit of it there. 
I figured. I was like, okay, if this was the Atlantic, it'd be, like, just black. Um, by the way, I don't know how, like, if it was a full moon that night, but I was out, like I said, I was out in the ferries last night, um, like, with pretty much, like, open air and whatnot, so there was, like, and uh, the moon wasn't, was, was there, actually, and I was in the clouds nearby, but, like, <laughs> it is freaking dark. Mm. like out there like it actually scares me open water at night yeah um, it's scary and keep in mind I'm, it's actually to be fair it's almost about the same latitude longitude not latitude longitude sorry we're almost on the same like you know 49th parallel in a way somewhat similar to where it sank and not really um but like <laughs> so it gets it gets dark. okay you're on the same planet yes on the same planet. <laughs> what i mean to say is not for that but just like uh, in a way, like we're almost in the same. Nor it's the northern hemisphere, so and it was April, so I guess it wouldn't get that dark. But it still gets pretty freaking dark, like out there. Uh, trust me, if you ever, if you ever come here, Eric. Like, I guess you've been to Seattle, but like, trust me, like out in the open water, it it spooks me sometimes. It's just like how the indigenous were able to like navigate around here, like you know. Well. I guess it has to be one of those kind of nights, like overcast or something, because... Oh, yeah. Uh, something I am familiar with is when you're out in the middle of nowhere, but you have either a full moon or just, like, the regular stars, because mm. I've reacted to that in real life, where it's just crazy how bright that stuff can be. Yeah. That's true. That is true. It's super cool. And especially a full moon... Um, like it is, it is almost shocking. Like it, it like it really makes sense to you why so many weird things have happened during full moons, like historically. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's fair. I mean, because, like, I remember like having times in the army where like the full moon could be so bright. Like it, it's crazy how everything has shadows. Like that's how bright it is. Um, like you can see everything under a full moon. Uh, it, it's completely wild, but. But certainly if it was an overcast day or something like that, I haven't really been out at sea, or actually not really at all out at sea, but I can certainly easily imagine what that could be like, just like the black dark ocean, if there was no moon and, and like, it's like it was overcast or something. I absolutely could see that as terrifying. Yeah, I think James Cameron handles the the haunting quality of all that that stuff. Like the guys coming back, looking for survivors, and just seeing all the dead bodies just floating around frozen. I think a lot of that captures a, a creepy energy. And I do kind of wish that James Cameron would lean more into the the creepy stuff again. I think he does handle a lot of that very well, especially in the first Terminator. But but that scene as well. So I, I think that's a strength of his that he hasn't utilized as much as he could. Um, but for Jack's death scene itself, I don't know if I have too much to say. Um, I wasn't hugely emotionally affected by it. I don't know about a few guys. Oh, uh, Molly, what's wrong with you? Oh, that moment, that moment came later. The very emotionally affected moment came uh, a little bit later for me. But that, That's just an, a, a, an additional addendum. Um, Oof. I mean, that, yeah, that one hits hard too, but if you're think, speaking of what I think you're speaking of, but, but not the initial one? as well no for me uh, the death scene it had been so long since i mean during a lot of the, the the climax and the running around just trying to escape the ship like it just kind of feels like props moving from piece to piece and like i'm still with them because i enjoyed their their romance but 
it feels like the movie's changed so much that I've, I'm not really thinking about it as much. And I do think that their death scene was well done and well handled. It just didn't really hit me all that emotionally speaking. Interesting. Man, it hits me hard every single time. Every single time since the first time. It doesn't always hit exactly the same way, but it always hits hard, though. And like I said, my brain does this thing where, even though I've already seen it before, I still keep trying to think that there's a way he can live. Um, <laughs> there's got to be a way, or it's going to be different this time. And and I remember watching it the first time, and I, I've experienced it on some rewatches. It's excruciating hmm. how long it goes. I mean, with Rose in the door and Jack just being there. Like, for me, as an audience member, you just want it to be over already or just skip it or just, okay, hmm. let's move on in time. But I think it's important that it lingers in that uncomfortable way because hmm. it just makes it worse. I mean, it makes the effect better, but it makes you feel worse, which, I mean, by design. I, I just think it works perfectly overall as difficult as it is for me to watch the, that those part that part um, I think it's difficult by design and I think it's perfectly done and it's textbook director manipulation of his audience I think yeah and just before Isaac goes I think I'll say uh, it could have been that we had had so many emotional scenes kind of in a row by the time we got to that death I was feeling a little numb to it or something yeah, no, I wasn't. I wasn't particularly. I mean, it was definitely a, a very sad scene. I think it was all well done, but yeah, I wasn't particularly emotionally moved during that bit over something like the uh, that scene with Victor Garber. I keep forgetting the actor's or the the character's name. I think it was Mr. Andrews. Thomas Andrews. There you go. I thought that, that scene hit just as hard for me as the the Jack step. Oh no 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 not for me. <laughs> That is weird, but you know what? I guess to each their own. I could, I could like keep pressing you for like, you know, what could have Cameron uh, have done to like swayed you? But at the end of the day, you know what? I think I accept your answer. I think it's you know, just to each their own. Some are affected, and I, I, I also am like with you. I, I, I was very uh, moved by some of the smaller moments of you know just even glimpses of minor characters, and we just see them having to deal with like you know the weight of drowning dying yeah. in this boat it's like there's something simple about it and i, I don't know how it, what that means but it just yeah, it just works like you said and i will say my uh i mean to i maybe i, I won't say it was that'd be skipping it too much but, but i do <laughs> think um i like her moment when she has to let him go and then swim off to find the whistle i thought that was really well done too and, and her little like half speaking voice that she can't get the words out always really stuck with me as a kid too and yep. it was like she was too uh, weak or something to scream I thought that was really well done freezing is more like it <laughs> well that's fair yeah like you like you said some of the like the bodies that were like had life preservers on but froze to death Ooh. oh the baby oh too he he does not like he does not hold back like, whether a baby drowns or a baby is frozen in the ocean, he doesn't hold back. And I will say, I my eyes welled up when she uh, when they asked her name on the boat later. She said Rose Dawson. That moment definitely hit me. Yeah, that's true. It was nice. Yeah, but I, I guess just to skip ahead, uh, the, the piece that really got me, and I, I just... 
it put me in a, a sour mood for, for quite a while for the rest of the day, actually. Was a scene when Rose dies in the bed. And then, yeah, resurrects back on the Titanic, and everyone's there. All the victims there to greet her again. And there's Jack at the top of the stairs. That, and even just seeing all the pictures of her life, like all these years that we didn't see that she lived past that grief, it just stirred up a lot of a lot of emotions for me about my own kind of years and all the people that I've known. And yeah, just that that ending really really hit me hard. And I even remember when I was a kid, <laughs> I could never watch it after I would usually turn the movie off after she threw the or drop the, the diamond into the water because I could just never watch that end sequence. It just always hits me way, way too hard. Too close to Elmer. And that's because Caleb's the ultimate capitalist and he can't stand to see <laughs> something so moment. valuable. As we clearly have <laughs> that seen in this discussion, he is clearly a capitalist. <laughs> he just can't bear to see such a treasure be reclaimed by the deep blue sea. It's supposed to be in a museum. There you go. <laughs> you belong in a museum, Dr. Jones. There you go. You got my hand. <laughs> oh, well, how about you guys? Were you were you affected by that uh, that scene there? The kind of closing moments. Because I did, I had to go and I had to put on some Yu-Gi-Oh! I had to try to listen to some more cheery music. I was like, wow, that scene. Yo, let's go! Yes! That really kicked my ass hugely. Yu-Gi-Oh! is always helpful in these situations, whenever you feel emotionally distraught. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, there's just something about it, some, about seeing all those victims and yeah, just meeting again after, and, and even just again seeing all the pictures, reflecting on her years, it's just, something about that just really... It's, it's a little too hard for me. Oh, man, it's the worst. It's the worst. It's the worst, but it's what makes these movies hit so hard, you know? It's, as I was trying to convey to Sean when we were talking about Interstellar, like there's, there's the part of appreciating the movie just for what transpires and what you experience on screen, but a lot of it, what adds extra heft to a movie like Interstellar or Titanic is the movie making that happens in your own imagination when you fill in all these other bits of where your mind goes um, of when you reflect on the aspects you were just talking about because um, for all those people who who brush aside Interstellar as just okay or some weak attempt at 2001 for whatever reason because I guess they don't connect with Nolan's style or whatever it is. For some reason, they just don't connect with the characters. And I know they're fictional characters in Interstellar, but I can't help but treat them as real fictional characters and, and me imagining their their lives and, and how long Murph lived and how long until she saw her dad and da-da-da-da-da. And, and with Titanic, obviously, a lot of this, even though there's some real characters um, portrayed obviously the actual nuts and bolts of what goes on is it has to be fictional um to fill things in fill details in and it's just gosh it's just so much to, it's just so much to think about and to take in um because obviously you have to think like look at all this this fictional character was able to do after the fact that they uh 
I mean that, that she was one of the survivors in, in, in the full life she got to lead, um, mm-hmm. you know, post Titanic. And I'm trying to think, what was the incident that happened? Not too. There was, what was the significant incident that happened? I can't remember if it was the big shooting that happened in Las Vegas um, a few years back. Um, it was that incident or something else. And and let's say it was the Las Vegas incident, the shooting that happened over there. That somebody who was killed there was like a like survivor of 9/11 or something. Mm. Uh, I can't. I mean, I, I'm probably getting my things, my recollections twisted, but I just remember reading about somebody who had like avoided this disaster, and then got caught up in this like other disaster, and it's just I don't even know where I'm going with this, but it's <laughs> just it's just incalculable, like all these types of things, um, and who knows what would have been, and um, we were talking about ADR earlier. And and I was, something I was gonna say then, but I just didn't was that like I like I've always heard like Seth MacFarlane, for instance, that he was super hands on when it came to like recording uh, early seasons of Family Guy, like with the cast and whatnot. Mm-hmm. That early in the show, like he had to be there, like in the studio, like when they're recording lines. Until later when he became more busy and then, you know, it wasn't like that anymore. But he used to, like, physically be there um, to, like, make sure everything. And then famously or infamously, Seth MacFarlane um, had a plane ticket for one of those planes during 9-11. And he missed his flight. And it's just, like, one of those things. Like, what? Like, what are all those things we never would have known you know, or you know, and it's not just Seth MacFarlane because he's a famous person. I mean, you never know about any of the people. Um, yeah, if, if things go one way or another. Yeah, we talked about that with the guy who produced Kubrick's first film. I think he died before it was even released. Died in a, a plane crash. And it's like, oh, what about his career? I mean, produced Kubrick's first film. How much more could he have done with his his life? And yeah, just cut short. Yeah, I, I think about it. I've been thinking about it like every time. Anybody brings up James Horner in this discussion or any other movie discussion, I always think about that too, because, you know, one of my all time favorite composers. And I'm curious what the soundtrack for uh, uh, Avatar 2 is going to be like, because I certainly listened to the heck out of the, um, the first yeah. soundtrack by Horner. Yeah, that's, that's certainly, yeah. Well, let's, let's, uh, oh, before we move <laughs> to final thoughts, uh, the last thing I had in my notes is, uh, I had not remembered that Enya had done the song for this movie. Uh, my mom was a giant fan of Enya. She was always playing her uh, her CDs in the car when we were driving around. <laughs> Sail away. And I've never been a particular fan. <laughs> and so I, she, she was her song's okay. It's a little it's a little Enya, a little sappy, but it, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> any any thoughts from you guys before we move to final thoughts there? Well, I, I guess we can move to final thoughts. Then. Okay, hang on, <laughs> hang on a second, hang on a second. Uh, <laughs> to compact what you both were saying about like the ending with Rose's life, and just like the images of her, well, like, the pictures of her, excuse me, uh, throughout the years afterwards. Um, show, don't tell. 
I don't know, just like a, a like a good version of show don't tell because there's always that rule of like, you know, do don't show, but in this case it was a show don't tell of like you know you infer this in your own mind and look at all the like look at how Jack inspired her to be like a much better person or well from well from with her within herself of course because she was the one that had to do it herself uh, as he told her yeah. on the boat or just to show the, the the strength of character that she can go through this and still keep that adventurous spirit and you know didn't end up just being like a, a housewife falling into the uh, marrying for wealth she really no. did her own thing and paved her own ways lived a full life became part of first wave fem feminism and never used the wealth that she could have very easily used of that diamond just just put it away and yeah never never told anyone see i told you caleb's hung up on that value of that <laughs> diamond <laughs> She should have given it to Bill Paxton. He worked all those years. She knew he did, and no, she was near her at the no. end of her life. And she still just stole that that money. He's from. a morally a compromised scumbag. Not allowed. I'm just kidding. Hey, so do you think uh, all the children she had, or at least maybe her first child, was Jack's? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. That's interesting. <laughs> like, uh, unless, like, you know, something happened, like, during, like, her and the being in the frozen waters there, like... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No, no, no. I mean, like, when they were... Well, when they first were in that automobile, oh. uh, we see the hands. And then, like, I'm saying when she was exposed in the water. As in, like, when, she, you know, she was almost near hypothermic. I don't know if that affects pregnancy at all, but I don't know if she would have gotten, like... <laughs> You know, yeah, if the child sure. would have been conceived by, I guess. It well, was. one would assume her core temperature stayed intact, whatever. Was well, going it was on. probably going below thirty-seven degrees Celsius, whatever it is in Fahrenheit. But like, yeah, probably. To point to the point. Obviously, I don't know if the child at that point would have been uh, a bastard at all. But no, child at all would have been infected. <laughs> infected. Um, Watching too much uh, Game of Thrones right now at the bastard talk. <laughs> not fair enough. Yes, not fair enough. But I wonder. I was wondering that whether because uh, I know she remarried, but like I assume she had. Because like, <laughs> again, if they if they procreated there, it's like well, she's getting a kid nine months later. Well, let's let's maybe move to final thoughts with the uh, yeah, the parentage. Unless you got a pregnancy or a, a test, one of those paternity tests. But but um yeah, f final thoughts starting with you. Uh, Isaac. <laughs> All right, my final thoughts. This was a Titanic of a film. Um, a train wreck. No, I just said it was a Titanic of a film to talk about, to make, and to film, and what have you. Um, it's good. Uh, there's obviously a lot of there's, like the Titanic itself. It's not unsinkable, or it is sinkable. Excuse me. So, um, damn. You know, there's 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 parts of it that don't work. But it ends beautifully, and there is just yeah, it's it's drama, it's tragedy, it's whatever you want to call it. I I enjoy it, and would definitely recommend it to anybody uh, to watch. And you know, yeah, I it's, it certainly cemented James Cameron as as being a a. a, a household name I'll say that because people still talk about this film to this very day so mm. and separately from the actual like Titanic itself so wasn't any of the films he did prior it's certainly this one 
And there's one more we'll have to do wow. uh, before, I don't know, it is. So, uh, take away, Eric, what is your final thoughts on this film? Well, Caleb already knows, basically. <laughs> but after rewatching it now, I have come to the conclusion that, regardless of what I feel about it, well, no, it plays into it, but I think Titanic is one of the greatest films that's ever been made. Um, and even just amongst uh, Cameron's works alone I never would have thought I would have said this and this is why I had to watch T2 today to confirm it but it, I guess it's by my reckoning clearly the best movie he's ever done um, even better than Terminator 2 and name whatever other movie you want to name of his even Aliens and um, I love Aliens. Uh, turns out I don't love T2 as much as I used to, but Aliens I certainly still love dearly. But I just think this is a better movie overall in so many ways. Uh, and like I said, it's not just amongst Cameron's works. Uh, I think it's one of the greatest movies ever. Um, now, I'm not going to put it in my top five or anything like that, because that's already a crowded uh, group right there. But despite obviously it's not a perfect movie and a lot of the reasons why it's not perfect were cited in this conversation but just by you know maybe it's greater than some of its parts or maybe it's exactly the sum of its parts I don't know but it's irrelevant because I just think it's a symbol of everything I think should be right about a movie that is near perfect ultimately like the ultimate experience and when it comes to get taken away and to be able to let a director go ahead have my have have your way with me meaning i will surrender to you manipulating my emotions and feelings um through your work i think it's just the epitome of all that yeah it just happens to and, and was for a long time the highest grossing movie of all time and remains one of the highest grossing i mean that doesn't necessarily mean it is one of the greatest movies ever made, but I think it really is in terms of taking you away and taking on an emotional journey and, and dealing with the big concepts. Cause there are certain big concepts that tend to show up like in great works. And, and, and one of those obvious components is reflecting upon time and, and, and a life and, and a path not taken and yada, yada, yada. And, and, and these are, these are big deals. These are really big deals. And as a, a layman uh, fan of history, I'm prone to this type of thinking, uh, and I wish more people were, but like whenever I go to a museum or see a documentary about something or read about some past civilization or major event in history, I always just can't help but try to think about the individuals who actually were there or experienced it and what they went through like on, on the mundane level, on the, the lower decks level, if you will. And I always can't help but think about those things. And when I see historical pieces in a museum, like a hairbrush or a pot or what or a coin, I always like try to imagine like where that what that like who has handled that item and all that kind of stuff and, and reading about the making of this movie, I guess this is what was heavily in in Cameron's mind because he did like I don't know it was like a dozen 
trips he did himself, like going under the sea to go spend time with the, the actual wreckage. And they say that the amount of time that he logged, um, like per hour, like being underwater near the wreckage, that Cameron himself spent more time with the Titanic than the actual passengers who were on the real ship. Because he's logged more time. Because the ship was only at sail for four days total um, until it hit the, um, the iceberg. And and I guess, according to the wikis, um, I guess he was um, deeply enthralled with that, that same thing I was just talking about, of like, looking at the wreckage and thinking about the real people, the real people who actually saw it and were there. Um, and just thinking about all those real people and with all individual thoughts and motivations and feelings and regrets and everything else. Oh, and you were talking about like the, the emotional, the parts of the movie that really hit emotionally. And of course there's potentially the, the Jack death scene. There's, um, there's, there's Caleb's heirloom going into the depths of the sea. But man, the one that really hits me, I think it's the part where it hits me the hardest when Rose has that that vision of of seeing like practically the whole cast. Um, when when she goes up the stairs one more time, like in her mind. Oh my god. It's such a almost like a manufactured type of scene. And almost elicits manufactured type of emotion, but I am such a sucker for because it's like a. I always say I love in in especially eighties movies, um, like in Platoon is a perfect example of like at the at the beginning of the end credits they show like the montage of all the different characters and especially the ones who have like passed in the movie, um, and this this is like an even more effectual version of that of of the typical montage with this because like you know you see like even like the people from steerage um and coach are up there like even like vasquez and her kids and the little girl with the curly hair is like waving oh my god it's so manipulative but oh shit oh it's one of the greatest movies ever i and i never really i always knew it was a good movie but honestly, I, I I think it should be on whatever list, you know, with like Gone with the Wind or whatever the other staples are. I honestly think it needs to be in that conversation. It's one of the greatest movies ever. Period. Yeah, and I'll say for me that that ends that end scene alone. Yeah, when it's either she dies and kind of sees them all again in in the afterlife, maybe that's a cornier way to take it. But I just take it as she 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 sees them when she sleeps. They're, she'll always be with these people that she she experienced that that tragedy with and i just think that moment itself makes it just an absolutely great movie like the fact that they can get to that point in the movie where you see that and it just completely overwhelms you emotionally i think the director's done his job in terms of james cameron this is such a dramatic leap into a different realm of filmmaking like he made a lot of great films up to this point but to see that he can thrive so well in in this kind of film is really a credit to him um, it does feature some of his issues, like cartoony villains, simplistic uh, messaging, and bloated runtime. Those things drag it down, and in, in that way it is greater than the sum of its parts. But it's still great, and yeah, it, even though it's not a movie that I'll return to very often, I, I definitely think it's an excellent piece of filmmaking. 
and really does pack the emotional punch that uh that a movie with this kind of story should i mean this is a very big tragedy and i feel like this movie respects the the tragedy of it it doesn't feel like pearl harbor or <laughs> some of those other some of those other movies that they don't really it feels like a little in some ways exploitative or at least not giving the proper care to the subject matter this one really does so yeah absolutely powerful film from from cameron Oh, but Isaac, do you wanna do you wanna take it home for us? Any any closing uh, closing words for us? I, I'm I'm so drunk now. I'm, <laughs> I don't feel confident. I, I couldn't tell. <laughs> to all, um, we have we have part two to do of this at another disclosed time. But <laughs> to all those who did sail the Titanic, whether you were greedy monsters or humble downtrodden individuals. Damn. May all your souls be at peace, because I don't know what you guys were in for after it sank. Thank you, and good night. before we close it now uh, we're, I, I feel like James Cameron actually didn't pay enough attention to the history I mean I feel like he left out a huge part of this movie and that was the the plot of the the gangster sharks uh, grabbing this gigantic octopus to throw an iceberg into the Titanic and uh, I was like what was this I thought you were gonna say I thought you were gonna say the Titanic crashing into the TARDIS or something ridiculous no, this is this is the no. that's the plot of the Legend of Titanic. Speaking of yeah, they missed it on having Christopher Eccleston have a, a cameo. <laughs> he would have been good in this. He's in that film. The, was that the photograph that Rose saw? Uh, the other Rose. Oh, you're <laughs> when right. When she went to the fan's house and then he's like there in his great leather jacket. You're right. Titanic. <laughs>